The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Lost Technologies. Here it is, Meat Sacks. The Space Lizard sending a non-serial killer chapter into the book of Time Suck this week. Going to cover a lot of different subjects today, from ancient weapons of mass destruction like Greek fire to more modern inventions whose secrets have been taken to the grave like Starlight. Meat Sacks have been using technology since the very beginning of our existence. We've never been a species that was just cool with hanging with nature as it is. Our technology has mainly come from an evolutionary need to keep nature from wiping us out. The world has endless ways to cut our days short, from countless diseases to natural disasters, predators of both land and sea, naturally occurring poisons and radiation, hostile bacteria, exposure to the elements, and more. Any of us leading lives of comfort on this oftentimes cold and heartless floating space rock have technology to thank for that comfort. Thousands and thousands of years of evolving tech created by hundreds of generations of talking monkeys. And the tech we'll be talking about today isn't just gadgets. Far from it. Clothing is a type of technology. Using a piece of wood designed to be pointy enough to stab a guy in the neck with is a type of technology. Finding the right herb to not have an unwanted pregnancy is a type of tech. In the last four centuries or so, tech has really sped up. It continues to speed up. It wasn't that long ago when we used ships and horses to pass messages around the world. Now we can FaceTime anyone on a Wi-Fi or cellular network across the globe instantaneously. It's truly incredible how far we've come. And it looks like things are only going to get better. Today, we live longer than ever. Our world is smaller than ever. And we've, you know, sent some meat sacks into space. And we're planning on sending more to Mars relatively soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such an exciting time to be alive. But are, but are today's technologies and the, you know, technological advances really the peak of science and technology for all time? Yeah, they probably are. Almost certainly, actually. But... Not all of humanity's advancements have survived to the present day. Much of what our ancestors have made has been lost to history. So was any of it better than what we have now? That is what we're going to try to find out this episode. This is the question we're going to attempt to at least partially answer. 
So let's dig in to a number of history's mysteries right now on Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Call to the Curious Members. Welcome anyone who has found this show recently because of the Johnny Dare Show in Kansas City or because of the Rizzuto Show in St. Louis. Both shows have been so damn good to me. I also highly recommend checking both these shows out. Uh, the Rizzuto Show has its own podcast, as does the Johnny Dare Morning Show. Or you can check them out in St. Louis, Kansas City on the FM airwaves. Some of the best morning shows in the business, truly. Uh, Moon from the Riz Show fronts the rock band Greek Fire. How perfect is that? Talking about the lost technology of Greek Fire today, and they have a new album out called Broken. Listening to it earlier today in the Suck Dungeon. Check it out everywhere. You can check out albums and support a great dude making great music. Uh, Moon, also the bass player for Goldfinger, a few punk ska fans, right? In addition to, to fronting Greek Fire. Uh, if you're new to this show, I'm Dan Cummins, Master Sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, still excited to hear Triple M, Michael motherfucking McDonald in that intro. Recording once again in the Suck Dungeon in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, script keeper Zach Flanner, and summer intern Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans, all in the office today. And we are donating $2,800 this month to the Impulse Youth Arts Organization, a charity uh, where one of our own space lizards, Jordan Alfaro, is a staff member, one of our own time suckers, Hail Nimrods. Researchers have found that learning to play a musical instrument can enhance verbal memory, spatial reasoning, literacy skills. Playing an instrument makes you both uh, use both sides of your brain, which can strengthen cognitive skills such as memory. Kyler, Monroe, both my kids in drum lessons right now. I play guitar for not great. I've messed around on it for, uh, gosh, 20 years now, a little over. Joe Paisley, he's in, a, he's in a band, great band called Moretta. Zach Flannery in a great band called Sovereign Citizen. Got a lot of music around the Suck Dungeon. And that's why we're donating to the, the Impulse Youth Arts Organization. So what is the Impulse Youth Arts Organization? They're a drum and bugle corps based out of Buena Park, California. Their goal is to help kids learn how to play an instrument, but the bigger goal is to teach them that teamwork, self-esteem, dedication to hard work are important. And 2019 is their 20th anniversary. And donating $2,800 to them uh, really makes a difference. You know, with a, with a small charity, uh, I'm just proud that that amount can can really do a lot of great things for them. So thank you to uh, all the space lizards who support Time Suck for allowing us to do that. To find out more, go to impulseyoutharts.org. Link in the episode description. Uh, thanks in advance to all the Time Suckers who came out to the Comedy Zone in Charlotte, Funny Bone in Richmond, Virginia. Had to record this in advance of those dates. Gonna be in Orlando August 9th and 10th in our, at the Improv doing some stand-up. The Happy Murder Tour, Lindsay will be with me. Sunday, August 11th, live Ant Hill Kids Suck in Orlando. Uh, not only Queen of the Suck, Lindsay be there as well. So will Tom and Dan from Mediocre Time. Mediocre Time with Tom and Dan. Great podcast. Uh, after that, Thursday, August 29th at the Comedy Store in Hollywood. Showbiz. Uh, and then August 30th, 31st, September 1st, at the Comedy Store in La Jolla, just north of San Diego. Queen of the Suck there as well. More dates coming up. Phoenix, Indianapolis, West Palm Beach, Tampa, more. Go to dancomans.tv for more info and the link in the episode description to that. And new Behind the Bit on Pandora with Chad Daniels. For you stand-up fans, just search Behind the Bit. Dan Cummins on Pandora app, or on the Pandora app, shows right up. And you can listen to it in order this time. And you can listen to the first Behind the Bit in order for free for both of those. Also, 
special new Axis Design collection in the store based on learning new info here in the Cult of the Curious. Time Suck is about having fun learning new things. So we're launching the Time Suck University Collection. There's a Time Suck School of Science and History, the School of Criminology, and the School of Wackadoology. We now have tees representing each school and a hoodie representing the university as a whole. So yeah, 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 get to it. All shirts made out of nothing but positive Cult of the Curious vibes and a smidge of squirrel nut dust for a little extra flair, a little extra pizzazz, a little showbiz. And uh, any problems with the merch, just email Kate at accessapparelco.com, link in the e- email description. And if you buy a tee and a hoodie together, you get automatically uh, $10 off. That, that discount does not go on top of the space of discount. But yeah, for time suckers, you get a little 10 buck off discount. And now onward, and at least historically speaking, backward as we go into lost technology. Not only are we taking a break from true crime today, we're also taking a, a break from a big old whopper of a time suck timeline. Just going to lay out a little baby timeline to provide some context for today's examples of lost technologies. So let's hop in, get a little historical context for how technology in general has been invented and advanced over the course of human history. Hail Nimrod. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Four billion five hundred and forty-three million years ago, Earth technology was present when the Earth itself is believed to have formed. Shortly before it was invaded by mind-controlling space lizards. Some people actually believe that last part. Solar power, baby. We just hadn't figured out, you know, how to use it quite yet. Since, you know, we didn't exist quite yet. Uh, now we're working on making solar power more and more efficient. Solar power could possibly power the entire Earth. Existing solar tech is actually strong enough to power the Earth right now. We would just need a giant field of panels roughly the size of the entire nation of Spain. And all those panels would have to be located in a pretty sunny place. As impractical as that is now, I, I do think it's pretty cool that the potential for solar power to someday power the uh, entire world is there if taken proofs. Get off the grid. Get off the grid. Less reliance on corporations or the government. Ah, I can feel the North Idaho coming out of me right now. Uh, It would be pretty amazing if someday the only power any of us need to run all of our devices comes from that power plant that's been around since the Earth's inception, that big fiery ball. Our smaller dirt and water ball rotates around the sun. I get why the ancients worshipped it. I get why some people still do. Pretty amazing. Hail the sun. Uh, Now let's skip ahead a little over 4.5 billion years. Human-like creatures burst onto the scene, started walking on two legs around 6 million BCE, and then they started killing each other with more than their bare hands shortly after that by crafting the world's first military technology out of tools from stone, wood, antlers, and bones. Never bring a fist to an antler fight. Sometime around 800,000 years ago, a few uh, strains of future humanity learned how to harness fire, and shortly after that, ancient meat sacks learned that fire plus food equals tasty as shit. Especially tasty if you find the right rocks and berries and leaves and grasses to rub on it and flavor up whatever you've just beaten to death with a club or poked with a sharp stick or tricked into throwing itself uh, off of a cliff. What's this big deal? Fire. Fire is the big deal. Clothing was the next big tech development. Clothing allowed my uh, early idiot ancestors to move away from tropical paradises and settle in gray, snowy wastelands where it feels weird to drink a pina colada ever and you don't see anyone in a bikini for 10 months out of the year. Stupid clothes. Stupid harsh habitat that makes clothes important. And Lucifina wept. Uh, it's generally agreed that meat sacks began to wear the skin and fur of dead animals to stay warm around 170,000 BCE. 
I wonder what a female Neanderthal would think of some of today's women's fashion accessories. What would someone trying to cover the bottom of their feet so they can run across rocks and escape from a saber tooth a little easier think of today's stiletto heels? What would you think of string bikinis? I imagine some version of, what are you doing? Just, just be naked. That's silly. You're just barely covering up two nipples and a couple holes. What would an ancient dude think of capri pants? I'm guessing he instinctively wouldn't respect it. I'm also guessing an ancient man would respect the shit out of the fanny pack. Just genius. That is something I can put some rocks and berries and meat in. Sometime around 9500 BC, ancient civilizations started to master agriculture and move from just harvesting what grew wild around them to understanding how to irrigate and grow crops and mass, crops and mass, excuse me. Farming gave birth to early civilizations by giving humans the ability to feed many other humans who then didn't also have to be farmers and instead could be artists or soldiers or even lawyers and politicians. So farming was mostly good. I kid, kind of. Uh, today, around 55% of the world's almost 8 billion you know, uh, people, excuse me, over 8 billion people, thought to be living in an urban area or city. No, almost eight. Yeah, sorry. I jumped the number in my head. It's under eight. Today, around 55% of the world's almost 8 billion people thought to be living in an urban area or city. That figure is set to rise to near to 70% in the coming decades, according to the United Nations. As the settlements grew, the demand for more amenities would become a driving force for more technological advancement. Handmade bricks were first used for construction in the Middle East between 7,000 and 6,000 BCE. And if you're thinking bricks, who gives a shit about bricks? I get it. That's what I first thought when I came across that info. But the invention of bricks provided a pretty big leap forward for humanity. Homes are now able to be built to last and be passed down from one generation to the next, allowing for easier wealth accumulation within families, leading to more class systems and ancient cultures and the rise of nobility. Religious centers can now inspire more awe. Walls can protect one group of meat sacks much more effectively from others. Bigger, stronger forts can more effectively intimidate enemies. The brick is a huge tech advancement. Yay, brick. Long live the brick. Hip, hip, hooray. We would have never made it to the tech level of creating PS4s and MacBooks if we didn't have solid structures we could put these devices inside of to keep them safe from the elements and from the theft of other meat sacks. All this makes me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that motivational theory in psychology developed by Abraham Maslow in 1943, comprising a five-tier model of human needs, often depicted as, uh, you know, hierarchical levels within a pyramid. Love any excuse to throw in some psychology. The theory states that needs lower down in the hierarchy must be satisfied first before individuals can attend to the needs that are higher up. From the bottom of the hierarchy upwards, the needs are physiological, safety, love and belonging, esteem, and self-actualization. You have to make sure you have food to eat, water to drink, a pot to piss in, and a place to rest where you can be protected from the elements before you can worry about things like a social life and grapple with questions like, but what do I really want to do with my life? Once you have some security, such as a brick house to live in, yay brick, and food and water and you're rested and socially fulfilled, well, now you have the luxury of working on things like passion projects. Now you have more time and energy to invent more tech. This theory has always made sense to me. I think it's one of the main reasons why first world nations develop a lot more tech than third world nations. The citizens of first world nations have the luxury of not having to worry about starving to death or dodging bombs, which gives them the time necessary to develop a lot more new tech, a lot more frequently. Glass shows up around 5,000 BCE. And by 4,999 BCE, uh, a lot of parents have already screamed some version of, I told you to be careful. I told you not to drop it. Ah, God damn, pay attention to what you're doing. Uh, the ancient Roman historian, Pliny, uh, I always want to call him Pliny. Apparently, he doesn't rhyme with piney. 
Uh, ancient Roman historian Pliny uh, suggested that Phoenician merchants had made the first glass in the region of Syria around 5,000 BCE. According to uh, the archaeological evidence, the first man-made glass showed up in eastern Mesopotamia and Egypt around 3,500 BCE, and the first glass vessels were made around 1,500 BCE in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Yeah, it's a lot of syllables. And then a man named Cameron Tower made the first glass one-piece water bong in Eugene, Oregon in 1993, and potheads rejoiced. Not even kidding. Came across that random uh, bit of uh, historical weed trivia and decided to sneak it in here. Another major technological advance was the boat. The earliest uh, historical evidence of boats are found in Egypt during the fourth millennium BCE. That's when early humans learned it was easier to consistently vomit at sea than it was on land. Boats also allowed early explorers to cross-pollinate cultures like never before. I mean, just imagine those early days. Heading across the Mediterranean or some other sea, fully believing in giant sea monsters and ever-present gods who can destroy your little boat with a thunderbolt or rise up from the depths and just pull you back down to the bottom. And then after days or weeks on the water, you find a little island of people who look a lot like you, but make different sounds to speak. People who don't know your gods and instead have their own. I mean, what a truly amazing experience that would have been. Boats furthered trade between early civilizations and accelerated the development of more advanced cultures. Sometimes when you showed up on some foreign shores, you found people who possessed tools that you'd never seen, had some new tech. Maybe you gave them some navigational knowledge no one in their world possessed, just worlds of knowledge colliding, ideas expanding, tech developing. Again, what exciting moments to experience. I mean, I love living in the present era with all of our modern tech but, you know, I am jealous of the true mind-blowing moments of wonder and discovery some of our ancestors were able to experience. Coastal trade fostered the growth of giant ancient cities on ancient shores. More meat sacks moved away from hunter-gatherer societies and small towns, moved into specialization, advancing tech further. More people are becoming artisans, weaponsmiths, boat builders, etc. Sometime around 3500 BCE, humans invented the wheel. The first wheels were used to create pottery. Uh, to make, you know, knickknacks and vases and other stupid, boring shit. But then something cool happened. 300 years later, someone used wheels to make a chariot and they realized, holy fuck, we can kill so many more people with these things. And then someone else is like, we can also use the wheel to improve agricultural technology and plow more land and plant more crops and feed a lot more people. And that first guy was like, shut the fuck up, Boringatiths. I was talking about some cool shit before you started slapping your dumb lip flaps around. God damn it. Could someone please run a spear through that dork? Sometime between 3500 BCE and 3000 BCE, the Sumerian people of southern Mesopotamia came up with the world's first written language, at least we know of. Reading and writing allowed for much faster acceleration of technological innovation. Uh, meat sacks didn't have to rely on the telephone game and the telephone game alone to pass information around anymore, to build on it from one uh, you know, generation to the next. You could actually write instructions that someone else could, could read and then later add to. I mean, imagine trying to run your life now uh, without written language. Imagine that world. No me gusta. Imagine what this podcast would be like if I didn't have anything to be able to read. Couldn't, couldn't write any notes. Just a whole bunch of vague information. And then there, uh, there was a man killed some people. And that was not, that was not good. He's a dick. He's a real dick. His name was probably Steve or something. And, uh, and the people he killed, oh boy, they were very sad. And their families were sad too, we think. And those families, they wanted like revenge or probably, I think, justice and maybe both. And Steve, oh boy, check this out. Check these details out. He killed some folks with some, like a rock. 
maybe a chokehold or something. And hard to say. He did a long time ago. And then maybe some people caught him. We're not sure. I think their names could have been Janet and Khalid. And uh, there was a dude named Miguel, maybe, or maybe Dane was involved somehow. Hard to say. You, you try to tell a two-hour story when you're just talking out your ass. Civilizations could advance without the written word, but not nearly as quickly as they could with it. Then between 3000 and 2500 BCE, the ancient Egyptians first produced papyrus, a word I struggle with every time I see it, an early uh, but crude version of paper. And uh, papyrus, man, uh, way more fun to write on than rock, I'm guessing. Now people didn't have to chisel into stones anymore. How much would that suck if you had to take notes on a rock? I feel like 99.9% of today's text messages not going to be written. 99.9% of status updates, all that, but definitely text messages not going to be written if people had to chisel them in stone. Right, just first stone tablets. Yo, did you see the game? And then a return tablet, you know, hours or days later. I don't know. What game are you talking about? Next tablet, the package game. Finally, another tablet. What's a package game? Next day, another tablet. Fuck! Autocorrect. Meant to chisel Packers. Final tablet. Oh, nope. Go pack. Days wasted as opposed to 10 seconds. 3000 BCE, the world's first Bronze Age settlement is Jerusalem. Bronze has been described by archaeologists and anthropologists as being pretty cool. Copper began to be widely used between 3,000 and 600 BCE. The technologies of metallurgy and blacksmithing thrust even more demand for commodities and tools under the global market. Also helps furnish more advanced weapons of war. Now the sharp, stabby things are glistening and ornate and a lot sharper. I'll be back in a few months, Susan. I'm going to murder some dudes with this fine piece of shiny art. Technology accelerates even faster now. At this point, we have fire, the wheel, copper, bronze, glass, a way to write it all down. Get the fuck out of our way, nature. Iron weapons show up between 1400 and 1200 BCE. Now we can really smack ourselves around. Iron swords, both stronger and cheaper than bronze swords. Huge military advantage if you're one of the first empires to get this tech. Iron rudders allow boats to be steered in a totally new way, advancing water travel and naval warfare capability. Plows with iron tips allow hard earth to be turned into fertile fields for the first time and expand the land available to be used for agriculture. More food allows empires to grow and further specialize and advance their technologies. The Chinese invent early magnetic direction finders, also known as compasses, between 300 and 200 BCE. Kind of a big deal. The compass allows for, you know, much more advanced naval and land navigation, allows for greater exploration and more cross-culture pollination of ideas. Around 150 to 100 BCE, gear-driven precision clockwork machines grow up, or should grow up. They're finally adults now. No, they show up. Tiny wheels driving the madness that would lead us towards an inevitable robot apocalypse just a couple thousand years later. In 50 BCE, a Roman engineer named Vitruvius perfects the modern vertical water wheel and now turbine technology is on its way. Two years later, the world suffers a huge technological setback when in 48 BCE, the massive library of Alexandria burns and with it an untold treasure trove of knowledge. What lost technology lied in those scrolls? I don't know, but impressive segue coming up here in a second. Uh, I'll tell you where you can find some of the best knowledge of today with our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. There's a sense of pride that comes with being able to talk confidently and intelligently about a subject or to be the only one with the correct trivia answer. These are just a few of the reasons why you need the Great Courses Plus. With the streaming device, excuse me, the streaming service that you can use on devices capable of streaming, you get the freedom to learn more about virtually any topic and truly master it. Learn unique perspectives from top 
engaging experts in their fields, all of whom pronounce actual words better than I do consistently. There's unlimited access to thousands of lectures on topics like death, dying, the afterlife, time travel, money management, even real crime scene investigation. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you get the flexibility to watch or listen anytime, just about anywhere. If you like ancient technology, then I recommend checking out the 24-lecture course, Understanding Greek and Roman Technology. There is also a 24-lecture course titled Lost Worlds of South America. You can learn about the ancient and mysterious Nazca Lines and the underground aqueducts built 1,500 years ago in Peru. How did they do that? Listen to that course. Get the awesome feeling of pride that comes with knowledge. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus and get an all-access trial for free at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Start your free trial now only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description button in the Time Suck app. In 105 CE, Tsai Lun makes the first real paper in China. Ideas can be spread even faster now. Drawings of nude women, undoubtedly drawn and passed around. Uh, they haven't been found, but I have no doubt of their existence. Between 27 BCE and 395 CE, the Romans developed the first basic concrete called uh, Pozzolana. Pretty badass stuff. We'll talk more about that after the timeline. In 600 CE, windmills are invented in the Middle East. And with it, turbine technology evolves further. Then a major invention truly changes the world forever. Candy corn. In 600 CE, ancient Mayans thought it would be fun to, to call small yellow sugar triangles candy corn, even though they're barely shaped like corn, and they taste literally nothing like corn. They just taste like sugar mixed with more sugar that someone smashed into a little pellet and then drizzled uh, some more liquid concentrated sugar on top of it, and then someone else sprayed some harmful chemicals on all that. Uh, by 605 CE, morbid obesity rates in the Mayan kingdom had risen by 75,000%, and half the population was already dead from diabetes. Diabetes. Candy corn production immediately halted. In 606 CE, everything's cool again. Uh, no, gunpowder is the next thing that changes the world forever. Between 700 and 900 CE, the Chinese invent gunpowder, fireworks, and I don't want to brag, but I've heard of both of those things. I know some stuff. Okay, you guys, I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, between 800 and 1300 CE, the Islamic Golden Age sees the development of a wide range of technologies, including uh, ingenious clocks and feedback mechanisms that are the ancestors of modern automated factory machines. Many also credit the early years of the Golden Age as the beginning of the scientific method. Super big deal. This method of gathering empirical evidence and controlled testing will advance all fields of understanding and lead to so much tech. Around 1000 CE, the Chinese developed eyeglasses by fixing lenses to frames that fit onto people's faces. Thank you, China. I like not getting headaches when I read things close up. Appreciate it. In 1206, an Arabic engineer named Al-Jazari takes the future to the next level and invents a flushing hand-washing machine, one of the ancestors of the modern toilet. Just think how different the world would look right now if the technologies of modern plumbing, including flushing toilets, did not exist. I'd be all right where I live. I could dig an outhouse. Could you? Not if you're living in some high-rise, you know, high-rise Manhattan condo. What would, what, would, what would your giant shit factory of a building do with all that waste? Think about that. How terrible would life smell? Huge shout out to everyone just involved in any way with the invention of the toilet. Got to be one of the best inventions that most of us probably don't think that much about and take for granted. Uh, warfare tech, of course, continues to evolve as well. In 1232 CE, the Chinese repel Mongol invaders using early rockets. Yep, ancient rockets. Fire rockets! Uh, these fire arrows were the world's first rockets propelled by gunpowder, arrows that exploded upon targets. 
I'm guessing the tough-ass Mongols felt a rare feeling of terror when that happened. Can you imagine being used to fighting with a bow and arrow? And then out of nowhere, someone essentially shoots a hand grenade at you. How many Mongols shit themselves that day? 5%, 20? I still want to do a Genghis Khan suck. And how fun would it be if you're the one who gets to fire the arrows? Right? If you have like this way more, like way superior military technology in battle. Sometimes I have this fantasy where I like to go back in time with a bunch of modern weapons and then just take shit over. I think it comes from Army of Darkness, that movie. But so great to go back in time with a bunch of antibiotics, you know, surgeon, bunch of automated, you know, automatic weapons, bunch of bullets, just, just run everything. Um, if I think about this uh, fantasy too deep, though, it does get a little bit sad, right? Because then, you know, yeah, you take everything over and one night you got to fucking dwell in an ancient place with no electricity or cools, you know, streaming shows to watch, no podcasts, no Hot Pockets, no toilets, no open-faced turkey sandwiches with, you know, good mashed potatoes and gravy, no PS4, no YouTube, never mind. It's a dumb fantasy. A massive leap for language and learning comes in 1450 CE when Johannes Gutenberg finishes the first modern printing press using rearrangeable metal letters called movable type. Just shove those quills up your asses, boys. Johannes, just shove the fuck up. The invention will lead to an explosion of knowledge and tech advancements when pamphlets and books are soon able to be published in mass and spread to the masses. People who never would have been able to access books when monks and scribes are doing a lot of print creation by hand for either the church or the nobility. In 1609, Galileo builds a practical telescope, makes new uh, astronomical discoveries. Intellectual imaginations bloom when the greatest minds in the world are able to see space like never before and dream new dreams. A few decades later, Anthony van uh, Leeuwenhoek and Robert Hooke independently develop microscopes. And the Reverend Dr. Joe Pace's ancestors are able to see their penises for the first time. Boom! Micropeen, Dad Joe, coming in hot! (laughs) Yeah, yeah! 1701, that's probably funny to no one, but 1701, an English farmer named Jethro Tull begins the mechanization of agriculture by inventing the horse-drawn seed drill. Another way to say that is that Jethro Tull paved the way for the invention of the tractor, which would lead to cool John Deere trucker hats. Jethro Tull also paved the way for a future band to use his name and introduce the flute into the world of hard progressive rock. If you can believe it, all the way back in 1703, computer technology was first being hinted at. Sort of. A man named Gottfried Leibniz or Leibniz pioneered the binary number system, which is now used in virtually all computers and might very well be the true language of the universe. Probably the language that the space lizards used to control the moon matrix. Thomas Newcomen builds the first practical steam engine in the early 1700s. And that was one hot invention. <laughs> you get it? It's hot because it's steam engine. Uh, steam. I'll show myself out. Hashtag dad joke. 1783, French brothers. Uh, Joseph Michel Montgolfier and Jacques Antonet Montgolfier make the first practical hot air balloon and send meat sacks into the sky. And then they either become the first members of the Mile High Club or at least think about it. They probably also think, man, this thing's really hard to steer. I mean, it's, it's cool. It's cool. What, what are you supposed to do with this shit? Uh, now meat sacks are traveling via land, sea, and air thanks to continual tech advancements. Around 1800, we get, to, uh, we get closer to the Tesla Roadster when an Italian dude named Alessandro Volta makes the first battery. And the 19th century would bring the world the largest boom of technology in the history of man. Boon, not boom. In the 1820s and 1830s, Michael Faraday first builds primitive electric generators and motors. In 1827, a man named Joseph Niepce invents the first modern uh, photograph. He also probably at least thought about taking the world's first porno pic. And I'm guessing he also at least considered taking a pic of his dick to show to some women who, if they didn't like it, he would just then say, I was just, I was joking around. I, no, I, no, I know it's gross. 
<laughs> that was the joke. Meredith, dude, I was just joking. Actually, uh, while I am joking around, check out how quick the invention of the photograph really did lead to the spread of pornography. In 1841, English scientist William Fox Talbot patented the first negative positive process, making multiple copies of a photo for the first time. This invention permitted an almost limitless number of prints to, produced, uh, to be produced, be able to be produced from glass negative. It also reduced the exposure time and made possibly true mass market for low-cost commercial photography. And it was immediately used to reproduce nude po- portraits uh, classified by the standards of the time as pornographic. Like within weeks, they were just using this, uh, you know, device to take pictures of, you know, paintings people made of, of naked women. And then soon pictures of naked women and just spread it around as fast as possible. Paris soon became the porn capital of the world. And that title lasted until other cities got a hold of this technology. And then every city was the porn capital of the world. In 1848, only 13 photography studios existed in Paris. By 1860, there were over 400, and according to one source, most of them made income from the sale of illicit nude images to the masses who could now afford it. <laughs> Hail Lucifer! I love we are such simple creatures in some ways. Dudes who are attracted to women have always loved pictures of naked women. Of course we have. If I could only look at one thing for the rest of my life, probably going to be a naked woman. Naked woman, then sunset, then puppies, then one of my enemies pleading for their lives. Those four possibilities have to be at least in the top 10. As soon as women started wearing clothes, wanting to see uh, women naked became a need almost as important uh, uh, to straight men as having regular access to food and water. Going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, check. Water, check. Where do I see some naked women? Uh, Sometime between 1830 and 1840, a smarty pants named William Sturgeon developed the first practical electric motor. Throughout the 19th century, the world went nuts on inventions, early forms of cars, Radio, telephones, power plants, dishwashers, space rockets, jet engines, electric dildos, air conditioners were invented as well as the discoveries of aluminum and new techniques for mining. Then tech really exploded in the 20th and 21st centuries. Television, robots, modern refrigerators, porn hub, nuclear power, satellites, fiber optics, cell phones, deep fat fried Twinkies, fanny packs, everything else we use today sprang into existence. And that is it for today's Time Stuck Timeline, but just the beginning of this episode. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right. That's, I mean, that was fun, right? We just learned so much. Our meat sack noodles, full of a little extra knowledge right now. Hail Nimrod. Now we have a little technological advancement context to work with. Meat sacks have been making shit and steadily progressing and improving said shit for literally thousands of years. With the advent of the scientific method, systematic observation, measurement, experimentation, and the formulation, testing, and modification of hypotheses, tech advancement sped up. We are to the point now of being able to send pictures of our most pointless shit instantly to our friends, potentially thousands of miles away. But what else could we have right now if certain technologies weren't lost? Or did we lose any technologies? Is the entire concept of lost technology just a bunch of wackadoodle nonsense? Is it just, uh, you know, part of that super fun ancient aliens mythology that leads more and more people to believe that all kinds of super cool shit used to be around, but then the damn Illuminati took it from us. Leave us alone, Illuminati. And then we probably probably used to be able to make uh, our own gold out of gravel, nose grease, and peanut shells. But then the Illuminati stole the secrets of alchemy. We probably used to be able to cure any and all diseases, but then the Illuminati masters that control big pharma took all of Earth's most powerful healing herbs, put them in an underground greenhouse where they can only help themselves. Why let us heal when they can just keep us drugged up and make fortunes, charging us outrageous amounts of money to barely stay alive? Those bastards. But seriously, did the ancients have some of their own cool shit that we no longer have access to? 
are there really some things that our ancestors did better than we can do now? One might look at the pyramids of Giza and wonder, why does it seem like ancient Egyptians were way better at stacking huge rocks than we are? I had thoughts like that in Machu Picchu, that incredible mountaintop retreat of the Incas uh, in Peru. How the hell did they build such impressive structures so high up in the Andes without electric and gasoline or diesel-powered machinery and tools? How did they do all that without forklifts and cranes and jackhammers and slab saws and backhoes, etc.? So let's check out some old cool shit. Let's see if we can figure out how it was made and if the technology used to create it was indeed lost right after a word from one of today's sponsors. Time Silk is brought to you today by Hims. I am not lying when I say that Hims biotin gummies are the tastiest vitamins I have ever eaten. Seriously, they're not candy. You're not supposed to just eat them like candy, but I did have three of them the other day because I left a little bottle on the counter near where I was working and I justified two more after already having the one in the morning thinking, yeah, they're, they're good for me. I can eat as many vitamins as I want. They make me healthier. But don't do that. You don't need one a day. You don't need 20, but you're going to want 20. The Hims Biotin Gummy uh, contains, amongst other things, biotin, an essential water-soluble vitamin that is necessary for the metabolism of carbohydrates, fatty acids, and amino acids. And Hims offers much more than vitamins. They have lotions, potions, prescription medication to treat erectile dysfunction and more. 40% of men by age 40 struggle from being able to get and maintain an erection. Thankfully, there is ForHims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men, and so much more. Hims connects you with real licensed doctors, FDA-approved pharmaceutical products to treat ED. They have known, you know, well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions. No need to worry about multiple in-office doctor visits. Simply answer questions about your medical history. Chat with the doctor for confidential reviews. And if you've, uh, you get approved, products are shipped directly to your door. Try Hims for a month today for just five bucks. We'll get you started for just five bucks while supplies last. Prescription products are subject to doctor approval, require an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. See website for full details and safety information. This could cost hundreds. If you went in person to the doctor's office or pharmacy, go to forhims.com slash timesuckED. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash timesuckED. Forhims.com slash timesuckED. And the link is in the episode description. Button link to the deal in the app. And speaking of buttons, I want to push a, a button to get us back into lost technology. First up, let's head to ancient Greece and look at a few of their most famous lost technologies. Greek fire, the uh, Antikythera mechanism, and the medicine Nepenthe. Greek fire was an ancient superweapon devised and used to great effect by the Byzantine Empire. Its exact recipe was a jealously guarded secret, a secret that now, of course, has been lost to history. Greek fire would become the most potent weapon of Christendom for over 700 years. Just think about that. That's a long reign. This would in no small part enable the Byzantines and Constantinople to resist its many enemies for as long as it did. Greek fire became so important to the Byzantines that Emperor Romanus II, who reigned between 959-963 CE, declared that the three things— Three things must never reach enemy hands. The Byzantine imperial regalia, any royal princess, and Greek fire. Greek fire was an incendiary weapon developed and used by the Byzantine Empire for both land and naval warfare. Accounts from the time as well as contemporary descriptions indicate it had a similar effect to modern-day napalm. So, super not fun to get lit up with Greek fire. If someone's like, hey, do you want me to chop off one of your arms or burn you with Greek fire? You're going to be like, Just grab a sword and get it over with. Get it over with. Just take an arm. 
Accounts of the time speak of how Greek fire could not be put out using water. On the contrary, it appeared to burn vigorously when contacted by water, and it would also stick to anything it came into contact with. Super fun. Sounds like a really enjoyable way to die. Greek fire was a devastating weapon. The flaming concoction could be deployed in a variety of methods. It was either thrown in pots or discharged from siphoned, handheld, or ship-mounted tubes. In the case of the latter, it was dispensed in a manner similar to a modern-day flamethrower. A flamethrower that kicked out a flame that wouldn't burn even if you stopped, dropped, and rolled. A flame that kept burning even when someone threw water on you. Greek fire was developed by Kalikinos of Heliopolis. He escaped to Constantinople from Muslim-held Syria around 668 CE. It appears he may have just refined a similar substance known to have existed long before he did. The kingdom of Pontus used a similar mixture against the Romans during the Mithridatic Wars uh, in the first century BCE. Although the exact recipe was a closely guarded secret, light petroleum or naphtha, known to be one of Greek fire's main ingredients, naphtha is a flammable oil uh, containing various hydrocarbons obtained by the dry distillation of organic substances such as coal, shale, or petroleum. Something the Greek fire probably was a mixture of petroleum, pitch, sulfur, pine, or cedar resin, lime, and bitumen, a black viscous mixture of hydrocarbons used for road surfacing and roofing. Some historians think it might have been a might have had gunpowder, gunpowder or melted saltpeter mixed into it as well. A recipe full of all kinds of shit that really cooked whatever it touched. Because the formula was only uh, handed down from emperor to emperor, little else is known about Greek fire. Its recipe was kept a secret for over 700 years and has been lost to history. Here's an ancient historian's account of its use in a Greek naval battle against the Rusi, some early Viking ancestors. The Greeks began to fling their fire all around, and the Rusi, seeing the flames, threw themselves in haste from their ships, preferring to be drowned in the water rather than burned alive in the fire. Uh, and here's an example of how truly militarily advantageous this weapon was. In the latter half of the 7th century CE, the Arab world was biting off great chunks out of the Christian Mediterranean, and their fleet seemed invincible. They conquered Sicily, Tarsus, great swaths of North Africa, even the mighty fortress of Rhodes. And, and then uh, they set their sights on the very heart of the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople itself. The Arab ships formed their three fleets, captured an island opposite the capital, and then settled down to besiege the city. And they stayed there for four long years. The Byzantines needed a miracle to keep from being conquered, and they found one in Greek fire. Sailing out to meet the Arab fleet with their ships spouting these magical flames, they routed the Arabs, and then they used Greek fire to rout another Arab fleet only a few decades later in 718 CE. And now that recipe is gone. But it's not like we don't have more powerful weapons than Greek fire now. I mean, nukes do a wee bit of damage. But we'd still love to have their recipe. I mean, if the zombie apocalypse hits and, you know, life as we know it ends, I wouldn't mind having some super fire to defend the Cummins bunker with. Also super cool that the Byzantines had a weapon so much more advanced than anything their contemporaries had. And were able to keep it a secret for so very long. What a great wild card to be able to, you know, take out in battle. Now let's look at a mysterious device. This is a lot of people's favorite uh, example of lost technology. A device that is thought to have sat at the bottom of the sea for 2,000 years before it was finally brought to the surface only to baffle us and then later to be used uh, by the Flat Earth Movement to ridiculous, a ridiculous attempt to kind of prove that they're right. I'll get to that in a second too. Uh, any excuse to talk about Flat Earth, I'm all for it. Uh, more than 100 years ago, an extraordinary mechanism found by sponge divers at the bottom of the Aegean Sea near the little island of Ant Antikythera. Antikythera. A little island that only about 50 people live on today. Beautiful little island. Two-hour ferry ride from Crete 
that, and this, the Greek government will actually pay you to live on this island if you can pass a relocation application process. I don't know, maybe you can work at the only restaurant on the island. Maybe you can open up a second restaurant and pray you get, you know, along with the other 50 people on the island. I, I wouldn't move there if I was single. I'm guessing the dating scene is uh, a, a bit rough. Anyway, just off this island, a unique bronze and wood object was found with a shipload of marble, coins, glassware, and pottery in 1900. And then the Antikythera mechanism was somehow ignored until 1951. Was this strange, complicated instrument used to make astronomical measurements? Yes. Was it, uh, was it a, a mechanical model of the solar system or an astronomical clock? Mm-hmm. Did aliens drop it out of their spaceship while no one, uh, excuse me, while on one of their disgusting kind of anal, anal probe missions? Not sure. Are those aliens hiding in Area 51 right now, waiting for thousands of wackadoodles to storm the military base and free them on September 20th? Maybe. For decades, scientific investigations failed to yield much light and relied more on imagination than the facts when examining the Antikythera mechanism. However, research over the last half century has begun to reveal its secrets. Spoiler alert, it's super fucking cool. This thing dates from around the end of the second century BCE, and nothing as complex as this mechanism shows up uh, again that we know of for the next thousand years. I mean, this gadget was way, way, way ahead of its time. The clock-like mechanism consists of roughly 30 bronze gears in a wooden container roughly the size of a shoebox. By turning a hand crank, you can move the gears and rotate a series of dials and rings on which there are inscriptions and annotations of Greek zodiac signs and Egyptian calendar dates. This incredible device also tracks uh, the seasons, uh, tracked ancient festivals like the Olympics. The Antikythera mechanism even included two dials that rotated to show both lunar and solar eclipses. But the most sophisticated thing the mechanism did was lunar calculations. You could figure out what cycle the moon would be in at any given point in time and model its elliptical orbit. This incredible device also displayed the positions of the five major planets known to the ancient Greeks, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. The mechanism also marks the earliest appearance of the differential gear. It is believed that the designer used a pin and slot arrangement to join two gears of differing tooth counts in order to model and compensate for the irregular elliptical orbit of the moon. Though uh, Through a complex series of gearing ratios, this ancient computer could predict solar and lunar eclipses, uh, displaying models of them at the user's fingertips, just as they would happen in the sky. It was the closest thing the ancient Greeks had to a smartphone or a computer. My mind is blown thinking about how it could have existed so long ago. So how did it end up on the seafloor? An astrophysicist at Athens University theorized in 2006 that the boat on which the mechanism was found may have been headed to Rome as part of a triumphal parade for the emperor Julius Caesar in the first century BCE. A related theory is that the ship was carrying treasure from the Roman general Sulla's sack of Athens in 87 to 86 BCE in the same time period. The famous Roman orator Marcus Tullius Cicero mentioned a mechanical planetarium called a Sphere of Archimedes that demonstrated how the sun, moon, and planets moved with respect to the earth. So who the hell made this thing? The devil! Uh, Some think that the inventor of trigonometry himself may have built it. Hipparchus, known as the father of trigonometry because he created the first trigonomic table in his attempts to answer questions related to the planets and other heavenly spheres. Old Hippie was born in what is now Turkey around 190 BCE, worked and taught primarily on the island of Rhodes. And Hipparchus, the guy with the name, to me sounds like some kind of dinosaur. Part of me wants to call him pterodactyl. Was one of the first thinkers to uh, speculate that the earth revolved around the sun, but he could never prove it. So did he build the Antikythera mechanism to build the case for the heliocentric model of the solar system being the correct model? Perhaps. 
Uh, since inventions like this usually don't come out of nowhere, many researchers think that we may yet find older precursors in a future archaeological discovery down the road. And now talk, let's talk about Flat Earth. Because also members of the Flat Earth movement have argued that the Antikythera mechanism proves that the Earth is indeed flat. Even though this mechanism's calculations regarding lunar cycles, dates, planetary positions, etc., only work with the round Earth heliocentric solar system model. It's ridiculous. So why did, why did they think this device proves uh, the Earth is flat? Oh boy, get ready for a whole lot of dumb coming your way. This is unbelievable to me, but, but not because I, because I have looked at flat Earth theory, you know, quite a, quite a few times before. <laughs> they think it proves the Earth is flat because the gears of the mechanism operate on a flat track. Do you hear what I'm saying? They think this thing proves the Earth is flat because this thing is flat. <laughs> because it's not shaped like a ball. God, this is like, this is the intellectual equivalent of arguing that the earth must be flat because you're able to determine the size of the earth using a calculator. And hello, calculator's flat. <laughs> Do you see what I'm, <laughs> fuck me, willful ignorance. I've come to understand that the flat earth movement is mostly just about stubborn fuck science and education and logic, willful, insanely frustrating ignorance. Flat earthers believe the earth is flat, not because there's any evidence, because there is not. They just want to believe it. It's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. We do what I want to do. They want to believe our government and scientists trick us. They want to believe the world is full of more dark mysteries and conspiracies than it really is. And, and I hope their beliefs always infuriate me. Okay, before we leave Greece, let's look at one more example of lost technologies uh, from ancient Greece, some ancient psychiatric medicine. The Greeks were said to treat those in mourning with a substance called nepenthe, an antidepressant known to chase away sorrow. The plan is frequently mentioned in Greek literature like Homer's The Odyssey, which lead many historians to think it's not real. Others, however, believe that it was very much real and a widely used drug in ancient Greece. It is said that Nepenthe originated in Egypt. Its effects have led uh, many to compare it to opium or laudanum as a drug of forgetfulness. Also possible that this plant is still around today, but modern science hasn't identified it. Or maybe Nepenthe is just opium or might just be weed. For real, the Greeks did have access to cannabis starting around the time of Herodotus in the 5th century BCE. Is Nepenthe a super good strain of weed that has been lost to history? Did it always get you just the right amount of high? Never paranoid, never too sleepy. Is cannabis a great drug we should legalize everywhere? Yes. Is it dumb that that hasn't already happened? For sure. Uh, if any of, any of you end up getting your hands on and smoking some actual Greek Nepenthe, oh, let me know how cool it is. Now it's time for some real cray-cray fun. Time to head to India. Go back uh, even further into history. The ancient texts of India often read like something out of a Star Wars uh, movie. You know, they reference flying machines called Vimanas. Did they actually have machines that could fly a couple thousand years ago in India? Uh, is that some kind of incredible technology we've lost? Mainstream archaeologists and historians will definitely say, hell no. But doesn't that sound exactly like something the Illuminati New World Order scum would tell us? Well, there is zero archaeological evidence at all for Vimanas being actual ancient flying machines, and it's highly unlikely. Machines were just flying around in the days when the rest of humanity were still figuring out how to make a better weapon than a kind of sharp stick. We're still wiping their asses with leaves. Let's explore this legend anyway, because it's super interesting, and because it provides a nice lead-in for the first of two of today's equal parts fun and frustrating idiots of the internet. Uh, the word Vimana in Sanskrit means measuring out or traversing. This term is used to describe palaces, temples, and in many cases, flying palaces or other worldly aerial machines, sometimes known as chariots of the gods, in ancient Hindu sagas like the Vedas, which originated around 1700 BCE. 
the Vimanas are mentioned in the ancient epic poems, the uh, Ramayana and the uh, Mahabharata. Maha, oh my God, I almost had it. Mahabharata, Mahabharata. Poems going back to the 8th or 9th century BCE. The term Vimana has been around roughly 3,000 years. And in the sagas, the term shows up uh, other fantastical elements are present, like gods and demons. This is important to give some context for the earliest references for Vimanas. There's uh, Ravana, a great king depicted and described as having 10 heads, although sometimes he has only nine heads because sometimes he sacrificed one of his heads to gain favor with Shiva, uh, one of Hinduism's principal gods. Shiva has three eyes. He had to open his third eye to present light and energy to the world. All of that, you know, open your third eye. All of that goes back to Shiva. Uh, Ravana, also has a lot of arms. The amount seems to vary. Sometimes he's in kind of like in a forearm kind of mood. Sometimes he's like eight or, you know, six arms. Lucky. Wish I could vary the amount of my arms. Sometimes when I'm going to bed, I wish I just had one arm. The other one just gets in the, it's in the way or it gets like trapped under my pillow and it goes numb and I have to shake it out, you know? Uh, sometimes it makes me feel like I thought I had like a stroke or something in the middle of the night. Sometimes I, I wish I had like three arms. I'm trying to eat and check my phone and drive at the same time, which I try not to do because I know that distracted driving is dangerous, but less dangerous if I have three arms, you know, if I had three arms, I could, I could do, I could like type out my notes. I could slap Joe Pace in his fucking face and eat a sandwich. So that's pretty sweet. You know, so fun to have all these arms. Uh, then there's the God King Kubera, the Lord of Wealth, half-brother of Ravana. And Kubera is a three-legged, one-eyed dwarf with only eight teeth. So maybe not as much fun to be him. He is rich though. So that part's cool. And sometimes these fellows are demons. And sometimes they're not. Depends on which story you're reading. Depends on how hangry they are. To describe these guys further, to have to start explaining the actual Hindu belief system, and we don't have time to get into that today, not even close enough. Way too much history in India for us not to explore it, though. Hopefully many times. Look forward to future India sucks. Uh, I just bring all this up to demonstrate the overall tone of these sagas. They're pretty fantastical, full of all kinds of intense imagery. It's not like ancient flying palaces show up in stories where everything else is totally of this world and totally natural. You know, it's not like there was just a bunch of human people walking around fishing, hunting, picking fruit, playing board games. And then suddenly one of them hops in a flying palace. It's what? What? That was weird. Generally, when we hear about Vimanas today, uh, we're not even hearing about the ones from the ancient text that we're hearing about ones mentioned in a much more modern book that pretends to be ancient. Vimanas tend to be brought up uh, now in extreme new agey circles, particularly of the ancient aliens variety. And beliefs in flying vessels known as Vimanas can be traced back to this one book called the Vimanaka Shastra. Shastra. Vimanaka Shastra. The Vimanaka Shastra, very strange text not only due to its contents, but also because of the way it came about. The title translates to Shastra on the topic of the Vimanas, Shastra meaning Hindu scripture. So it presents itself as this holy book where, you know, you need to learn anything about Vimanas, this is the book you go to. But it's not an ancient Hindu text. It was written in Sanskrit in the early 20th century, sometime uh, between the years 1918 and 1923, long after Sanskrit stopped being a commonly used language. So he's just pretending to be older. India has a population of over 1.4 billion people, which that blows my mind. And in 2014, uh, in the census in 2014, it was discovered that only 14,000 of those people, of all those people, only 14,000 described Sanskrit as their primary language. And I'm guessing many of those speakers were Hindu priests since it's primarily used today in religious ceremonies. There are a few small, very small villages where residents still speak it primarily. But in general, you know, it is the language of ancient India, not the language of today's India, most Indians today speak either Hindi or English. According to J.R. Josier, who brought the text to public attention in 1952, the Vamanaka Shastra was psychically, psychically channeled by a 19th century mystic known as Subaraya Shastri, who attributed its spiritually obtained contents to Bharadvaja, 
an ancient Hindu sage he conversed with in visions. Sweet. This doesn't even sound even a little bit fishy. Sounds so legit. Let's see what accurate knowledge it contains. According to the Vamanaka Shastra, the Vamanyas, uh, you know, of the ancient text were aerodynamic flying machines propelled by mercury vortex engines. Inside the Vamanaka Shastra are details of the construction of these unbreakable machines, as well as a number of secrets, such as turning the machines invisible, making them motionless, performing supernatural abilities, like uh, causing your enemies to lose consciousness or, you know, photographing the insides of their planes. Uh-huh. Uh, I wonder if those features came, uh, you know, with like deluxe Vamanas or if you got them with a the standard Vamana. You know, like, like if you picked up a standard Vamana, did it come with invisibility or did you have to pay more for that? Uh, this book was translated into Hindi and then into English in 1973. And in 1974, mechanical engineers at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore, uh, they debunked it. They concluded that the contents of the Vamanaka Shastra displayed nothing more than, quote, poor concoctions and a complete lack of understanding of simple aeronautics. I want to, I want to repeat that. It, this book displayed a complete lack of understanding of simple aeronautics. So the book did not do well with critics. But I love it. Three out of five stars. Uh, the Vamanas, as described in the book, couldn't fly because the person who wrote about them didn't fucking know anything about flying. Just a lunatic. And yet, despite being debunked, the Vamanaka Shastra, often used today as a source of evidence for the true existing of ancient Indian flying machines and even for ancient aliens. So, uh, I feel pretty confident saying that flying Vamanas never existed for sure 100% did not exist. If they were real, then I guess there also used to be a dude with a bunch of arms and 10 heads walking around. And his half-brother was a, was a three-legged, one-eyed dwarf demon. And both of them knew another fellow with a magical third eye. Get the fuck out of here. But, you know, what do I know? Uh, let's take a break from what I think about all this and see what the web thinks about flying Vamanas on today's first of two Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Okay, so today's YouTube comments I'm going to be talking about here are pulled from underneath a video titled Ancient Flying Vimana Recreated, posted by Phenomenal Travel Videos on January 13, 2015. I'm just going to play you a, a little bit, about a minute of how the video, uh, you know, kicks off, and then I'll explain in a lot more detail so you understand uh, what this guy is referencing here. Hey guys, we all know ancient flying machines called Vimanas mentioned in sacred Indian texts. Nope. But in this video, I'll show you documented history it doesn't. where a Vimana actually flew nope. and the British government had to intervene and suppress this technology. They didn't. In 1895, eight years before the Wright brothers flew their first plane, a man mm -hmm. called Shivkar Bapuji Talpade flew mm -hmm. an unmanned airplane in front of thousands of people in mm. India. Mm -hmm. But the really intriguing detail right. is that he did not depend on modern physics or aviation techniques, but he created this flying machine entirely based on ancient Indian texts. Nope. Uh, no, that's true. I've looked into it uh, pretty thoroughly. This guy just pulled all of that out of his third butthole. His third butthole is open. That's where he gets all of his, all of his information. Uh, the narrator proceeds to tell the story about uh, Sabaraya uh, Shastri. I apologize on these, on these names. They're they're lengthy. Uh, and that's the dude who supposedly thought, you know, all this horse shit up, you know, in the in the uh, Vamanaka Shastra, the book that I just uh, went to, to, to great lengths to prove is, you know, is not credible. Uh, according to this video, 
Uh, that book's author worked with Indian scholar, that uh, Shivkar uh, guy, he just mentioned Shivkar Talpati for 15 years, building a magical flying plane in the mid-19th century in India. And then these guys supposedly flew out this machine in front of a whole bunch of Indian people, and it was so awesome, and then they should have became super famous, but a racist, white, and British imperialist government confiscated their for sure real flying ancient spaceship. And then these British bastards, they threw Shivkar in jail for basically being too fucking cool for school. And now a lot of UFO sightings are actually sightings of flying saucers that have been built using Shivkar's stolen technology, and you get the idea. It's a bunch of wackadoodle, theosophical-type nonsense. Very Madame Blavatsky. Might as well talk about how uh, Subaraya and Shivkar are still building these flying machines in Atlantis when they're not, you know, tinkering around with time machines and teleporters inside Mount Shasta working with the Lemurians. Despite this video being obvious wackadoodle nonsense, a lot of people just wholeheartedly agree just by everything this narrator has to say. Man, critical thinking. I can't fucking stress enough how important it is to the future of civilization, right? Just because someone makes a cool fucking slideshow and puts it on YouTube doesn't mean they know fucking anything. Uh, <laughs> so here's uh, Jeslyn Jacob writes, Britishers were true dickless morons who killed such a great country and they pretend as if they did a great favor. Salute to our great Indian scientist. All right, easy, Jeslyn. First off, who says Britishers? Uh, Shivkar was not a great scientist. He was a Looney Tune. When you actually dig into the story, when you dig into his story, which has been well-researched, the flying Vermana he made back in the 19th century was essentially the aviation equivalent of a shitty kid's helium birthday balloon, at best. And not even that has been totally verified. Best case, he made something shitty. Worst case, he lied about everything. British colonists did do terrible things, Jezen, but hiding ancient Hindu spaceships and then selling them to the Nazis, like this video will also later outrageously claim, not one of those things. Uh, Mads Guy 7 writes, it's very sad that Indians don't take credit for all their inventions. The media, <laughs> this is when you know, the media, the media wants to think that most inventions were made in Europe or USA. This comment references the video claiming that Shivkar beat the Wright brothers, you know, to the invention of working aircraft. He did not. Again, all he made, when you get into the historical accounts of what actually happened, which you can find, it just takes a little more work on the web. Uh, if he wasn't lying, uh, you know, at best he made this, this crude cylindrical, uh, cylindrical, yeah, cylindrical structure, my God, made out of bamboo, a structure that may have been filled with liquid mercury, and if that, you know, did happen, then the, the mercury could have reacted with sunlight, releasing hydrogen. And because hydrogen is lighter than air, that would help this contraption float a bit. Uh, he didn't build a man's, you know, aviation structure. It, it wasn't test flown in front of a large crowd either. It rose to a very small height, if it did rise at all, and then crashed within minutes in front of just a couple of his friends. Again, even if it did that, there were just a few uh, witnesses. It was not like this guy just described it. It's just a fish story. This legend grew throughout time. And if you go back to the, you know, original, no, that's, none of this is before. And then a uh, user, Multi-Klearski writes, before we build a Vimana, we must honor Sri uh, Shivkar for his love for our ancient sciences. Shivkar work must be studied in detail and he must be on. If it, it has been studied in detail by your own engineers, they're like, nah, this is fucking horseshit. So you could honor him or you could not honor him because he didn't invent anything. And you'll never build this because it's not real. Uh, Bruno, I just love that there's people out there thinking, God, we just got a fucking stupid British. It's like, if we could just get our hands on those blueprints, we could totally build all these flying machines. Uh, Bruner Galachan posts, suppressing a great mind's ideas is the worst crime. This man's work should have deserved credits and encouragement. I feel sad for him. Being a visionary makes you totally misunderstood by normal people. Frowny face. 
Thank you for sharing this informative video and make me and making me learn something new about history. God damn it. You just you didn't learn anything about history. <laughs> YouTube is such a scary place. Tell a story with enough confidence and, and cite some sources that all tell the same lie. We've, we've gone through this with uh, conspiracy sucks in the, uh, before. You know, a couple people write a couple crazy books 100, 200 years ago, and everybody today just cites those books and acts like those citations give their case validity. 10 minutes of digging. You can easily get to the bottom of this story. Discover it's for sure a myth. Investigative journalists fact-checked this commonly told story because it became popular, quickly discovered not true. Uh, Gary Mann Post, thanks for telling the truth. Ah, the man never got the recognition he deserved all because of the British government. He never got recognition because he didn't do anything. His comments, they make me feel crazy after reading for a while. You know what makes me uh, feel crazy when I think about how in the future, people are going to be writing comments like this about David Icke and about Alex Jones. For sure, for sure. After they're dead and gone, they're going to be talking about what great visionaries they were, how the world just didn't believe them because the world's sheeple were afraid of the truth. And people write this even though they, uh, they, those guys never actually told any hidden important truths. You know, these people, they don't tell important truths. People believe them. I, I wish stupid didn't sell so well. Um, Basil Abdul Wahab writes, I am interested in recreating our traditional Vimanas. I'm always curious in researching. Uh, I'm always curious and researching on ancient aliens. And I talk more about it to my friends, but they make fun of me as they should. Your friends sound smart and logical. You're talking fucking crazy talk. You're not going to recreate some flying harmonic because you can't recreate what didn't exist in the first place. Uh, I'd like to recreate something that allows me to build pyramids with my mind, but I'm not going to because it's not real. Garov Solansky, last one writes, sorry, no one can recreate it because everyone is busy making money from apps rather than innovation or discovering things. Money ruined the world. And the reason uh, no major inventions have been made this decade. What are you talking about? No inventions have been made in the past decade? How about Tesla electric cars, self-driving cars, iPads, the Curiosity, the Mars Rover, bipedal robots that can run human light through obstacle courses. And there would be huge money. What are you talking about? There's no money in this. If you could make the, no, there would be huge money. If you could create a little spaceship about the size of your car that can move up and down and back and forth through the air with ease. It can just stop in midair, like, like, like it has some kind of weird air brake and just hover there. You would make so much money if you can invent that, you moron. If you made that pretty soon, only the poorest of the poor would be driving cars and trucks. Everyone else is zipping around in Vermonts because it'd be the coolest thing ever. This video has 10,000 likes, only 400 dislikes. And the comment section is a terrifyingly wackadoodle echo chamber. 1,400 comments, roughly. I didn't see one that said anything to the effect of, what the fuck are you guys talking about? And the YouTube channel that uploads this video or uploaded it uh, pumps out nothing but other wackadoodle videos. And they have over 500,000 subscribers. Please, Meatsex, please don't fall for shit like this. Right? Please be better than this. Like, look into things. Really dig into stories before you decide to believe them or not. I get wanting to believe in magic. It's fun. I don't like, I don't like shitting on the magic parade. I want to believe these stories. But there's no point in pretending that this shit is real when it's obviously not. It's dangerous to think that it is real. Believing in flying Vermonters requires you to also believe that powerful secretive forces have taken these things away. They're hiding mind-blowingly incredible advances from the rest of us. They're hiding flying saucers. What else are they hiding? They're probably hiding the cure to cancer. So why keep looking for it? They're probably also brainwashing us, you know, in government-funded public schools and universities. So why go to school? Wake up and drop out, sheeple. You learn everything you need to know from YouTube. Learn everything you need to know from phenomenal travel videos. Do you see how slippery this belief slope really is? I fucking beg you, think critically. I spent way too much time there night trying to, you know, logic proof an anti-flying Vasana argument. And I know that no matter what I say, 
no matter what I come up with, there will be certain people they'll find this video eventually on YouTube. They'll be like, oh, he's fucking bought off by the government. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He just, you know, oh, he thinks his sources are superior to my sources. Oh, he thinks, you know, investigative journalism is superior to some fucking jackass pulling shit out their butt. Uh, it's the world we live in. A world where, you know, one person's lies can just butterfly effect their way into wackadoodle movements that far outlive their creators. Don't become another idiot of the internet, meat sacks. You beautiful, critical bastards. There are already way, way too many. Idiots of the internet. Okay, calming down now. Before we leave India, let's look at some lost technology we can actually uh, see and touch at least. The Iron Pillar of Delhi. This almost 2,000-year-old piece of iron seems almost impervious to rust. The Iron Pillar of Delhi is a nearly 24-foot iron pillar located in the 14th century Kutub Muslim complex. Weighs more than six tons. Made up of 98% wrought iron, the pillar is ornate, but hardly awe-inspiring unless one knows just how long and mysterious its history is. The iron pillar predates the complex. It was forged 1,600 years ago, moved to Delhi roughly 1,000 years ago before the mosque it stands in front of was even built. The purpose of the iron pillar is one of its many mysteries. Excuse me, some say it was a flagstaff made for a king. Others say it's a sundial. No one knows who moved the pillar 1,000 years ago or how it was moved or even why it was moved. Many insist that the Iron Pillar of Delhi should be dust by now. Other exposed iron artifacts created around the same time have turned to dust. It was this enigma which led some people to include the Iron Pillar in a group of objects known as uparts, or out-of-place artifacts. These objects are said to be in some way unreasonably futuristic for their time, as if they'd come from another place, and time, and or andor were created by non-human gods or aliens. Some of these out-of-place artifacts have been shown to be outright hoaxes. Of course they have such as the Kazo artifact, a spark plug said to be found embedded in a chunk of rock 500,000 years ago. In fact, it was just a 1920s champion spark plug. It just had developed a little shell of iron oxide concentration rust around it, which made it look like it was inside of a rock. Whoops. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I guess I was a, little, a little off on that one. Uh, some discoveries have turned out to be a case of underestimating the technological capabilities of the people of the past, such as the Antikythera mechanism we already discussed. The Iron Pillar in Delhi is an absolute testament to the high level of skill achieved by ancient Indian ironsmiths, but it is not an example of lost technology, not misplaced. The reason, of the, the, reason the pillar has avoided corrosion from the rains, winds, and temperature fluctuations over the last 1,600 years is not due to magical uh, metallurgy techniques. It hasn't rusted like it should have because of the accidental formation of a passive protective film. The film was created through a complicated combination of the lack of lime in the furnaces used to make the Iron Pillar— the presence of raw slag and unreduced iron in the pillar, and the wetting and drying cycles of the local weather, all of which combined to create a 120th of a millimeter thick layer of mesowite on the pillar. Mesowite is a compound of iron, oxygen, and hydrogen, and it does not rust. But that scientific explanation is just too boring for a lot of people. Not sexy enough. Not as sexy as ancient astronauts. So, you know, people choose to believe that ancient metal workers, you know, creating a six-ton, 24-high iron pillar some 1,600 years ago, just not a cool enough story. But that's the truth. That's what it is. So let's head now to the Middle East and look into Damascus steel, something that did for sure exist, was for sure incredible, and the ability to make it has for sure been lost. This is another very popular piece of lost technology. The remarkable characteristics of Damascus steel, Damascus steel, excuse me, uh, became known to Europe when the Crusaders reached the Middle East beginning in the 11th century. They discovered the, the swords of this metal could split a feather in midair, yet retain their edge through many a battle. Those swords were easily recognized by the characteristic watery Damask pattern on their blades. 
Although modern high-carbon steels made using the 19th century Bessemer process actually do surpass the quality of Damascus steel, it does remain an outstanding material, particularly for its day. Sorry if you're hoping uh, for something uh, there along the lines of, and scientists think that either dwarves, elves, or hobbits made these remarkable swords that no modern swords are even close to as fucking cool as. That doesn't mean that Damascus steel wasn't cool, though. It was way stronger than anything their contemporaries could create. I mean, isn't that in and of itself pretty amazing? The secrets of Damascus steel were shared by armors in many parts of the ancient world, uh, notably in Persia, where some of the finest specimens were produced. It was in this quenching or hardening process that many believe that acquired its magical properties, according to Dr. Helmut Nickel. That's kind of a cool name, Dr. Helmut Nickel. A curator of the Arms and Armor Division of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, legend had it that the blades were quenched in dragon blood. Man, that would be cool. That's even cooler than elves. That'd be amazing if that were true. I could die happy if I owned an elf sword quenched in some dragon blood. While dragon blood was never used to quench swords, some medieval smiths, check that, this is weird, uh, did use the urine of red-headed boys or that from a three-year-old goat fed only ferns for three days. And you might think I'm kidding. No. Some ancient sword makers, according to some random ancient legend, uh, did think it was a good thing to do to ask young ginger boys to piss on cooling steel to make their swords stronger. And I think that's hilarious. I wonder if they got paid for that. I used to make money mowing neighborhood lawns when I was in like fifth, sixth, seventh grade. I wonder if some medieval kids, you know, made some dough, made a little bit of scratch, pissed on some swords. That's way cooler. I would have gladly pissed on some swords. And they probably even got, you know, got to drink ale to produce the piss. That's the best summer job ever. Get drunk and piss on some swords. I'm refocused now. It's unclear exactly why Damascus steel is called Damascus steel. The steel may have been made in Damascus at some point. The pattern does somewhat resemble Damask. The Damask pattern is certainly true. Damascus steel became a popular trade item. Uh, through the ages, perhaps from the time of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE, the armors who made swords, shields, and armor from such steel were rigidly secretive regarding their method. And then with the advent of firearms, the secret was lost and never fully rediscovered. No one has replicated the original method of making Damascus steel because it was cast from woots, a type of steel originally made in India over 2,000 years ago. The techniques for making woots were lost in the 1700s, so the source material for Damascus steel was lost, you know, with this metal. A great deal of research and reverse engineering has been done to replicate, uh, you know, Damascus steel. No one has successfully cast a similar material. So Damascus steel, true lost technology. Now it's time to uh, focus our gaze on Rome and a handful of their lost innovations, or at least innovations that were lost for a long time. In Rome, we'll check out a special kind of flexible glass, a pretty special cement recipe, and a kind of birth control that was used by so many sex-hungry Roman heathens that the plant it was derived from became extinct. Uh, first up, the mystery of an ancient cement from Rome has recently been cracked, and it, and it might actually help the modern world reduce its carbon footprint. History contains many references to ancient concrete, including in the writings of the famous Roman scholar, uh, Pliny the Elder. Pliny lived in the first century CE, wrote that the best maritime concrete was made from volcanic ash found in regions around the Gulf of Naples, especially from near the modern day town of Pizzuli. Its virtues became, virtues became so well known that ash with similar mineral characteristics, no matter where it was found in the world, uh, have been dubbed uh, Pizzolan. By analyzing the mineral components of the cement taken from the Pizzoli Bay breakwater at the laboratory of UC Berkeley, as well as facilities in Saudi Arabia and Germany, the international team of researchers discovered the secret to Roman cement's durability back in 2013. Uh, they found that the Romans made their concrete by mixing lime and volcanic rock to form a mortar. And then to build underwater structures, this mortar and volcanic rock was packed into wooden forms 
And then the seawater soaking to the forms triggered a chemical reaction through which water molecules hydrated the lime, reacted with the ash to cement everything together. The resulting calcium, aluminum, silicate, hydrate bond, cash bond was exceptionally strong. By comparison, Portland cement, the most common modern concrete blend, lacks this lime volcanic ash combination and doesn't bind as well as ancient Roman concrete. It starts falling apart much quicker. The Romans, those meat sacks knew how to build. The Roman Colosseum is almost 2,000 years old and still standing. Portland cement, in use for almost two centuries, tends to wear down particularly quickly in seawater with a service life of less than 50 years. In addition, the production of Portland cement produces a sizable amount of carbon dioxide, one of the most damaging of the greenhouse gases. According to Paolo Montero, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and the lead researcher of the team analyzing the Roman concrete, manufacturing the 19 billion tons of Portland cement we use every year accounts for 7% of the carbon dioxide that industry puts out into the air. In addition to being more durable than Portland cement, Roman concrete also appears to be more sustainable to produce. To manufacture Portland cement, carbon is emitted by burning fuel used to heat a mix of limestone and clays to 1450 degrees Celsius, 2642 degrees Fahrenheit, as well as by the heated limestone calcium carbonate itself, to make their concrete, Romans used much less lime and made it from limestone baked at 900 degrees Celsius, 1,652 degrees Fahrenheit, or lower, a process that used up much less fuel. Montero and his colleagues also suggested that adopting materials and production techniques used by ancient Romans could also produce much longer-lasting concrete. So let's get some of this shit on the freeways and roads of this country ASAP. In Spokane Valley, I've hit potholes that felt like they were actually going to rip a tire off of me. Off my truck. I don't have tires. And we're just, you know, j- just worked on a few years before. Montero estimates uh, that Pozzolan, which can be found in many parts of the world, could potentially replace 40% of the world's demand for Portland cement. If this is the case, ancient Roman builders may be responsible for making a truly revolutionary impact on modern a- uh, architecture. One massive concrete structure at a time. How cool is that? Seriously, this, this is one of my favorites so far. You know, ancient technology lost for centuries, quite possibly making a huge comeback today. Amazing to me that concrete technology developed two millennia ago could be better than what we commonly use today. Okay, onward to another bit of lost Roman technology. Now, this is a fun story about flexible glass. Excuse me. Uh, imagine glass you could bend or dent and then watch it return to its original form. A glass you could drop and not break. Stories say that an ancient Roman glassmaker had the technology to create a flexible glass, vitrium flexili. It was supposedly invented during the reign of the Roman emperor Tiberius Caesar between 14 and 37 CE. Legend has it that the craftsman who invented the stuff brought a, a drinking bowl made of flexible glass before Caesar, who tried to break it, whereupon the material dented rather than shattering. The inventor who repaired the bowl easily, or then repaired the bowl easily, excuse me, with a small hammer, after the inventor swore to the emperor that he alone knew the technique of how to manufacture this, Tiberius had the man's head cut off, afraid this material would undermine the value of gold and silver. <laughs> that sucks if that story's true. And if that story is true, what a roller coaster of a day for that dude. He wakes up all nervous, you know, I got to make a presentation right. Oh, God, I hope this works. This could really change everything for me. You know, really hoping that the, that the emperor loves his invention. Oh, God, please work. And then, the, then it does work, and the emperor's like blown away. He's like, yeah, this is so great. I, I can't believe, I'm so happy. I just, I can't, I'll make as much as you want. And then he gets his fucking head cut off. The Roman historian uh, Pliny expressed his doubts about the truth of the story, though, writing, this story, however, was for a long time more widely spread than well authenticated. Uh, today, the story of Roman flexible glass mainly treated in the same manner as it had been by Pliny, that is, with much doubt. What if it was true? What if he developed a superior glass formula, just like the Roman builders developed a superior concrete formula? 
guess we'll never know. I mean, it's probably not true. But the technology, if it did exist, is lost, which is a real bummer for billions of people who use cell phones, get tired of their screens cracking when they're dropped. Can you imagine how much money that you'd make if you invented that glass now? Flexible glass, Android, iPhone, iPad screens. Flexible glass computer screen. Flexible glasses in your glasses, on your face. Flexible glass windshields. If any listener can figure out how to make miraculously bendy and unbreakable glass, I'm going to cut you in a deal. Check this out. I'm going to let you advertise here on TimeSuck for free in exchange for only 50% of the profits you make from bendy glass. Deal? You make me that deal, I'll let you ride on my hovercraft made out of nothing but flexible bendy glass and Damascus steel once a week. Now let's talk about ancient birth control. The Romans allegedly invented an incredible birth control method called the pullout. Romans would allegedly pull some type of fleshy appendage out of some type of fleshy hole before it would, quote, shoot all over the place. And scientists haven't been able to figure out what the heck they're talking about. No, the legend is that the Romans uh, found a wildly effective herbal contraceptive. And it became so popular that they used up all of the plants they needed to have to make it. The mysterious herb, this is this might be actually my favorite story in all of, in all of these stories today. The mysterious herb was known as silphium. Silphium was a plant, possibly related to parsley, which was used as a culinary additive, a topical ointment or salve, and a, a medicine, you know, a medication for several ailments most relevant to this discussion as a form of birth control as well. It was cultivated in the oldest Greek city in North Africa called Cyrene, or Cyrene, excuse me, Cyrene now in Libya. Uh, Silphium became so important to Cyrenian economy that depictions of the plant appeared on almost all of its currency. And the plant was a staple in the toolkits of physicians and mystics across the Mediterranean for at least 700 years. Uh, The plant first appears in historical records dating from 7th century BCE Egypt where we know is part of medicinal recipes for contraception and abortion, as well as remedies for anything from coughs and sore throats to leprosy treatments, and it was used as a wart remover. So it probably even worked, uh, you know, on getting rid of hand job face warts. In fact, which there is no cure for now. In fact, the Egyptians and Minoans each developed uh, specific symbols or hieroglyphics to represent the plant, which clearly illustrates the importance it enjoyed in these early Mesopotamian cultures. Nearly every part of the plant was used from the stalk to the resin to the tuber-like roots, and it became so popular that it was over-cultivated and sold into extinction by the first century BCE. Plenty of the Elder claims in natural history that the very last stalk of silphium ever harvested was given to Roman Emperor Nero as an oddity, and that that son of a bitch promptly ate it because he was a selfish dickhead. Uh, there are those, however, who believed that it's not extinct, but just uh, misidentified. But this has never been proven. It is sadly very likely as extinct as the dodo bird. Uh, while the physical plant no longer with this silphium is still around symbolically, this is my favorite part of this, my favorite story, I think is, you may have heard that the common heart symbol, right? Our, our little heart, the classic heart symbol, which is shaped nothing like an actual heart, is actually a representation of either the stylized shape of the female buttocks, that's what I like, the heart, uh, or the pubic mound, huh? Nirvana's heart-shaped box, or that it's a medieval depiction of various flowering plants, such as fig leaves, ivy, or water lilies. No, that shape comes from this ancient miracle herb. The first use of the familiar double tear-shaped heart symbol in the historical record is on the currency of Cyrene. The now iconic heart shape, believed by most to be a reproduction of the visual appearance of the silphium seed. I've looked up images of these coins, and it really is the exact shape of the romantic heart that we use today. Thought that was some pretty cool trivia. Hail Lucifina. What a bummer, man. What if this plant really was a miracle elixir and a form of birth control way better than anything available now? And the, and the ancient Romans fucked it into extinction. 
kind of bums me out. I know it's not, you know, really a technology. Well, but I mean, but medicine, you know, if the plant's gone, then any kind of medicinal technology around it, you know, it just becomes lost. Stupid Nero. I, I mostly blame him. Okay, now let's head to the Middle East and hope for some good news, which I doubt we're going to get because this suck, after all, is called lost technology. Not, oh, I'm so glad we found this technology. Uh, the Baghdad Battery, or the Batteries of Babylon, were found in 1938 by a German archaeologist. These alleged batteries could be up to 2,000 years old, consisted of a clay jar, copper cylinder, and an iron rod. If filled with a weak acid like vinegar, the combination could have produced around one volt of electricity. So, were ancient people using electricity? Cue ancient aliens theme song. No, probably not. While even some experts do refer to it as a battery, its true purpose remains unclear. One idea is that it was used for electroplating objects uh, with precious metals, which is awesome just in its own right. Similar objects from uh, Seleucia were used for storing sacred papyri. Uh, so perhaps the Baghdad battery also just used to store papyri as well. Uh, these batteries were among objects uh, looted from the Iraqi National Museum in Baghdad during the invasion by the USA and its allies in 2003. And sadly, now they're gone. And we don't know what happened to them. Uh, you know, something, so they may not exist anymore. Something that for sure does still exist and is uh, one of the most common sources of lost technology speculation, the pyramids of Giza. And, and, and I'll let these pyramids of Giza kind of represent all ancient stone structures because the same arguments exist around all of them, which is, you know, how could somebody have built this so many hundreds of thousands of years ago with primitive tools so rather than break all of them down individually, let's just look at the most famous, the pyramids of Giza. We spent some time investigating the pyramids of the Napoleon Suck, 134, talking about them with Cleopatra. Uh, one of the most common things you will hear from folks about the pyramids is that we couldn't build those today. And I know we talked about uh, pyramids also in some, some earlier, like real early time sucks as well. You know, people don't just say uh, this is about pyramids. There are megalith stones as part of monuments and structures all over the world. Again, like the Incan structures, they all raise the same questions. How do they fucking get these big, heavy rocks and carve them so precisely without diamonds and lasers? Look to YouTube. You find a lot of people who just say something effective. Ha, duh, aliens. But we're going to look a little further than that. Uh, what do the experts think? Could we actually build these massive structures today? Modern archaeologists say they know how the ancients did build these structures. Engineers think that they could for sure replicate these structures given a big enough budget and enough time and enough manpower. The current theory regarding the building of the Great Pyramid of Giza is that it was assembled from inside out via a spiraling internal ramp. Following this building plan, experts say we could replicate the wonder of the ancient world for a cool five billion. But how did they do it almost 5,000 years ago? First, let's look at the blueprint. The pyramid is 756 feet long on each side, 481 feet high, composed of 2.3 million stones weighing nearly three tons each for a total mass of 6.5 million tons. And legend has it that the structure was erected in just 20 years' time meaning that a block had to have been moved into place about every five minutes, day and night. You know, that pace would have required the labor of thousands, but thousands are thought to have worked on it. The Roman historian Herodotus, uh, while told it took just 20 years to build, also told that the crew working on it numbered roughly 100,000 laborers. Previous theories held that the pyramid was built via a long external ramp, and we don't know. I mean, he was told it was 20 years. That doesn't mean it did happen in 20 years time for sure. Uh, previous theories, you know, held that the pyramid was built via a long external ramp, a ramp that would have had to wind around for more than a mile to be shallow enough to drag stones up and it would have had a stone volume twice that of the pyramid itself. But a new, more economical theory gaining traction amongst architects and Egyptologists holds that the bottom third of the pyramid's height was constructed by stones that were dug, uh, drug up an external ramp. But above that, 
for the remaining 33% or so of the pyramidal volume, the Egyptians worked their way up through the inside of the structure, building around a gently sloping internal ramp of fitting stone blocks into place as they ascended. Furthermore, the workers could have reused the stones quarried uh, for the external ramp to build the pyramid's upper echelons so that nothing went to waste. Jean-Pierre Houdin, a French architect who developed the internal ramp theory, has collaborated with the team at Dassault Systems, a 3D graphics firm, to create a virtual model of the construction process. A team of scholars at Laval University in Quebec is now planning an infrared imaging investigation which could reveal the spiraling ramp within the Great Pyramid. If found, it would be final proof of Houdin's theory. But whether or not the theory bears out, Houdin says an inside-out construction would still be the best way to build the Great Pyramid. I am quite sure we could do the same today, and it would be the most economical method, he said in an interview. There would be two main differences between pyramid building now and then. First, he said, instead of people pulling the sleds to carry the stones up the ramps, you would use something with an engine. Secondly, for the topmost 10 or 15 meters, you would use a small crane. Just as cranes are lifted on the top of skyscrapers today, a helicopter would apposition a crane into a flat top of the pyramid. Stones and other construction materials dragged up to that level via the internal ramp would then be set in place by the crane. It wouldn't be feasible to build the entire structure with cranes, Houdin said, because they wouldn't be able to reach far enough to lift materials from the base to the center of the top of the pyramid. While the pyramid was originally built by thousands of workers over the course of 20 years using strength, sleds, and ropes, building the pyramid today using stone-carrying vehicles, cranes, and helicopters would probably take about 2,000 workers, take them about five years, and again, cost around $5 billion. Uh, and that's based, based on manpower and the cost of constructing the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River during the Great Depression. That dam contains a volume of concrete roughly equal to the stone volume of the pyramid. So in conclusion, ancients could have built the pyramids with technology they had access to, and we could build them now with new technology. So really, mystery solved. I, I am beyond impressed by the architectural abilities of the ancient planners of these wonders, like the Great Pyramids of Giza. But, but I've never really like been left wondering like, oh my God, how could they build these huge structures without modern technology? Because they just were able to devote so much more manpower to these things than we could now. And so much, uh, such a higher percentage of wealth, you know, of their nation. Because back then you just got to tell laborers what to do, like, you know, or they fucking die. You know, they're, they're like, like, like we could build a lot of cool, gigantic monuments now if we just didn't care at all about environmental impact, didn't care at all about the cost. And didn't care at all about the labor. Like if we were able to force, you know, 100,000 workers to literally work themselves to death in order to get something done, yeah, we could build a bunch of cool, big fucking stone shit. Uh, another popular but highly unlikely bit of pyramid lost technology also comes out of Egypt. To what can only be described as the inevitable and highly seductive religion of ancient astronaut theorists, a symbol found in the Egyptian Dendera Temple Complex vaguely resembles a modern light bulb with a squiggly filament inside and a plug at the bottom. So that must be proof that the Egyptians had electricity. This theory claims that the pyramids and obelisks are power stations and power lines, respectively, and a lot of people believe in this possibility because it's fun to believe in weird shit. Trained archaeologists state that the symbol depicts a creation myth of the time. The plug is a lotus flower that represents life uh, rising from primordial waters, and the filament signifies a snake. But ancient aliens fanatics don't give a shit about that kind of stuff. They don't care what Illuminati puppet experts think about anything. Uh, they think Egyptians were given the power of electricity by their gods, who were actually aliens, who helped them build the pyramids. When I think about this argument, you know, when, when people choose to believe this ancient, you know, astronaut, alien kind of theory, I always just think, yeah, but why, did, why didn't the aliens then give them better things? Like better tech, if they had all this, you know, crazy alien technology, then give them some spaceships, give them some laser guns, give them some Wi-Fi. Why would, why do you just give them the, 
the ability to bake big ass fucking stone buildings. Give, give them central AC. I'm guessing if they had the choice between central AC and electricity over a giant stone tomb, they would pick electricity. Also, uh, no electrical wires, glass bulbs, metal filaments, or electric power stations have ever been excavated. And again, ancient alien believers, they don't care about that. Evidence, schmevidence. Now let's look at some advancements that may have been lost more recently. Let's talk about some modern tech. Start with the, you know, by comparison, comparatively modern, let's start with the Stradivari violin. In the violin-making world, two names reign above all others, Antonio Stradivari and Jerry McCracken. Jerry McCracken violins will go for, I don't know, billion, two billion, no. Uh, the other name is uh, Giuseppe Guarneri. Both masters lived during the late 17th and 18th centuries, early 18th centuries. Uh, they both lived in the same small town in Northern Italy called Cremona. They both garnered a reputation for making the best stringed instruments in the world. Why? Why can't modern violin makers make violins that musical prodigies think sound as good as those old, you know, ass fiddles? I don't know why anyone cares about this. Just fucking play the air banjo. Fuck it. Give me a million dollars. I'll make an air fiddle. I'm going to put that out there right now. You give me $1 million and I will make the best sounding fiddle, an air fiddle in the world. It'll sound better than anything else. Or my name is Donald McRonald. Uh, but yeah, but why? Why can't modern violin makers make violins that musical prodigies think sound as good as these old fiddles? Well, because, you know, those two guys sold their souls to Beelzebub. Wake up. That's the suck. is really about the devil. Lucifer's behind all this. Uh, no. Uh, luthiers, not talking about Luther, Satan, uh, a.k.a. violin makers, have tirelessly tried to imitate Stradivari's and Guarni's, uh, Guarneri's craftsmanship ever since those dudes died. Copying their wood choice, geometry, construction methods, but they just can't replicate the rich sound of those instruments. Why? For hundreds of years, the best violin players have almost unanimously said they prefer a Stradivari or a Guarneri instrument. Why nobody has been able to replicate the sound remains one of the most enduring mysteries of instrument building. A more recent study published in December of 2016 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a magazine with a circulation of about five people, suggested answers may lie in the wood. Mineral treatments followed by centuries of aging and transformation from plain might have given these instruments unique tonal qualities that are impossible to replicate now. If you compare Stradivari's maple with modern high-quality maple wood that is almost the same, the two woods are very different, says Huan Ching Tai, a professor of chemistry at the National Taiwan University and an author of the paper. In the study done in collaboration with the Chimai Museum in Taiwan, Dr. Tai and his colleagues used five analytical techniques to assess wood shavings from two Stradivari violins two Stradivari cellos, uh, and one Guarneri violin. Their measurements yielded several major findings. First, they found evidence of chemical treatments containing aluminum, calcium, copper, and other elements, a practice lost to later generations of violin makers. They don't know their KFC recipe. Modern luthiers don't do this, said Henry uh, Grassino Meyer, a geography professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, who studies tree rings and did not participate in this research. Uh, this paper is the first to convince me that some kind of mineral infusion into wood might cause superior sound in a musical instrument. It's unknown whether the tonal results of these treatments were coincidence or whether the old masters knew beforehand that the chemicals would have that effect, Dr. Tai said. He said he thought the chemicals were probably first applied by forest workers who soaked wood and minerals to ward off fungus and worms before sale. Over time, the salts may have hardened the wood through chemical bonds. The researchers also discovered that one-third of a wood component known as hemicellulose had decomposed in Stradivari and Guarneri's instruments. Because hemicellulose naturally absorbs a lot of moisture, the effect was that the instruments had about 25% less water uh, than recent models. 
This is fundamentally important because the less moisture, the more brilliant the sound, says Joseph uh, Nagvieri, a luthier and a professor emeritus. Ha I think I got that word right this time. Of biochemistry at Texas A&M University, who was not involved in the study. Uh, in comparison with other violins, Stradivari and Guarneri uh, instruments are known for possessing rich, dark bass tones and a quality known as brilliance or the ability to project a clean, high-frequency sound that tickles your ear from far away, Dr. Nugavieri said. Dr. Tai's team also found a property in the Stradivari uh, violin samples, but not the cellos. When they heated the wood shavings of the violins, they found an extra peak in oxidation, which implies the detachment between wood fibers. This detachment, possibly the result of centuries of vibrations from playing, may give the instruments greater expressiveness. Top violinists often feel like these old violins vibrate more freely, which allows them to express a wider set of emotions. Uh, For a while, people suggested that luthiers had simply used trees that have gone extinct, but in fact, the trees they used do still exist. Experts contest that Stradivari's secret had to do with the fact that he had lived during an extremely cold period known as the Little Ice Age and the trees around him were growing differently. How exactly they may have produced better instruments, however, remains unclear. Experts also say that with their continued decomposition, many of these instruments will lose their acoustics in the next century. And when they're gone, we may truly lose any additional secrets they possess. And what if, and I'm not kidding, the real secret to these instruments was that those guys jerked off on their violins and rubbed the semen into the wood. Just hear me out. What if they hired locals to jerk off onto their violins so they could rub so much semen into that wood? Like, like so much. I doubt scientists have tested for that possibility. Or even more disgusting, what if those wily old violin makers shit on those violins and they rub their shit into the wood? And that's what makes it sound so good. Or, <laughs> I'm, almost, I'm almost done. Maybe most disturbing, what if they realized that only a combination of fresh semen, feces, and blood could really make a violin really sing? I know that's insane, but pretty funny for me to think about people paying millions for these violins. I mean, many uh, models are worth over $10 million a piece now because they sound so good only to find out the reason they sound so good is these guys were shitting and bleeding and pissing on them. Sound, you know what? Sometimes I think I should see a therapist. Uh, for the next bit of lost tech, you might think I'm fucking with you. And you might not trust me after all the other crazy shit I've said to you over the last couple of years, but this is real. This is literally bananas, but it's real. An actual, an actual variety of sexy-ass Nana, once used to make tasty-ass Nana candy, was lost to history for a time, but now is making a small comeback. I know this really isn't a piece of, you know, like tech I'm talking about, but, but in my gut, the story kind of fits today's tale as well. as It's just interesting. It's an interesting tale about produce. And some of you know that historically, I have loved produce more than the average meat sack. Let's talk about a lost banana. Uh, you know the flavor of banana that's in all the taffy-like candies that are genius enough to include a nana flavor? The flavor that, in my opinion, tastes better than an actual banana? Well, that flavor comes from a real fruit. It comes from what was once the banana of choice for a good chunk of the world. But now, unless you're in Miami or in a handful of other cities willing to find a supplier of exotic fruits, you won't find this nana. It almost went as extinct as old Roman birth control. For most of the world, all we have to remember this lost Nana by now is that artificial flavor. Before the mid-19th century, very few citizens of the United States had bitten into an actual banana. And possibly no one had tried to fuck a peel in a grocery store bathroom. Hey, it wasn't that no one had ever tasted banana. The fruit just wasn't common in the U.S. at that time. And yes, I'm going to just move forward as if I didn't make that bathroom comment. And then a coffee planter in Jamaica introduced Americans to a new banana cultivar, he acquired in the Caribbean island of Martinique, the Gros Michel. There were a number of red and yellow banana varieties in the United States at the time, but Big Mike, as the Gros Michel, uh, was affectionately termed, eventually bested them all and became Top Nana. 
Big Mike's dominance, the American banana market had little to do with taste and a lot to do with shipping. The variety of Nana has a thick, hearty skin that is resistant to bruising. Bunches of Gros Michel typically grow more hands, the word for an individual banana bunch. They grow tightly together, making them easier to say, toss into a ship and transport. In addition, a long ripening period allows the Gros Michel to transform into its characteristic shiny bright yellow as it made its way across the ocean. And come across the ocean it did, the Gros Michel came to dominate the banana industry. And it was the primary variety of banana that Americans happily munched on for the first half of the 20th century. But then Big Mike got sick, came down with some kind of nana dysentery, some kind of nana tabies, some kind of nana cancer. In the 1950s, various fungal plagues, most notably banana disease or Panama disease, devastated banana crops. By the 1960s, the Gros Michel was effectively extinct uh, in terms of large-scale growing and selling. And that's when the Cavendish imposter-ass nana showed up. A banana cultivar resistant to the fungal plague, a banana that didn't taste as good, but still pretty sexy. And the Cavendish is the sexy nana that we eat today. But the remnants of the nearly extinct flavor of the Gros Michel remain preserved on our candies. And while the Cavendish may have a more familiar banana taste to us today, those candies invoke the first nanas that captivated the American public in Philadelphia in 1876 when they first showed up. When you're peeling back the, the wrapper of a banana Laffy Taffy, you're effectively stepping into a little time machine, heading back to a, to a day when bananas taste like candy. Bummer. Some people think Big Mike is poised for a comeback. I hope so. Who wouldn't want even taste your nanas? And uh, what, I, what I want right now is more Nana talk. And I'm going to get it with the second and final idiots of the internet. There's no rule that says we can't do two. But first, last sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by Old Klondike Sluice Discovery Service. No one is better at making you money by finding anything that you've lost, including technology, than Old Klondike. For just $99.99, Old Klondike will come to your home or office or random place in the wood or middle of the creek or just wherever, and he'll set up a sluice and he'll get to sifting. He can find anything, cars, keys, glasses, phones, car keys, rings, hair ties, wallets, pens, gloves, socks, pets, hymens, sanity, control, jobs, whatever you've lost, Old Klondike can find it. Howdy, and my name's Lewis Schultz, so you can call me Old Klondike. No one can sluice and shift like Old Klondike. I once found someone's dad they lost and an old girlfriend had lost track of and a ruby as big as my fist and 40 pounds of gold in the Georgia apartment complex playground is just outside of making. Set me upon your dirt and you'll be as rich in a lickety split. I swear it's true. Everything I say is true and my name ain't old Klondike. Time suck is in no way tied to the claims of old Klondike and please keep in mind we consider retaining his services that his name is not in fact old Klondike. That's fun. A non-murder character from the Bell Gunna sack. And now more fun with another Idiots of the Internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Idiots of the Internet. 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 Uh, let's take a final break from talking about inventions. Talk a little more about nanas. This time we turn to a Christian apologist and, uh, you know, uh, a man of the faith from Australia named Ray Comfort. And, and don't worry, Christian suckers. I'm not going to make fun of him for having religious beliefs. That's not why this video is funny to me. But in this video, Ray, along with uh, former sitcom star Kirk Cameron from Growing Pains, uh, is dishing out what he calls the atheist's worst nightmare, not understanding how he discredits his own argument by not understanding the history of the object he's holding, a banana. Ray presents the argument that the Christian God has created many things on earth specifically for man to enjoy by demonstrating how brilliantly God designed our modern banana. But he's wrong about one little thing. God didn't design the banana he's holding, man did. So Ray is our idiot today. Seems like a nice guy, but made a real dumb video with Kirk. Uh, the modern day banana didn't exist centuries ago, 
any more than dogs like my two Labradoodles, Penny and Ginger did. Actually, the very first banana, nothing at all like the healthy and tasty treat we know today. It was thick and tart and full of seeds. It was hardly even edible. Only after humans manipulated the genes over many, many, many generations through selective breeding did mankind get to really enjoy the banana of the present. Ray's using the banana to illustrate the point that God made the banana work for man. Uh, you know, that's the point he's made. But the reality is that, that, you know, man manipulated nature to make it work for him. Now, I do understand that the argument could be made that God gave man the ability to change the fruit for himself. But that's not the point that Ray is making specifically in this video. So let's listen to him. It's a short video. It's only a minute and five seconds long. Uh, hear him talk about the, the atheist's worst nightmare. Hold this, Kurt. Behold the atheist's nightmare. Now, if you study a well-made banana, you'll find on the far side, there are uh -huh. three ridges. On the close side, two ridges. If you get your hand ready to grip a banana, you'll find on the far side, there are three grooves. On the close side, two grooves. Okay. The banana and the hand are perfectly made one for the other. Perfect to hold a You'll banana. find the maker of the banana, Almighty God, has made it with a non-slip surface. Okay. It has outward indicators of inward contents. Green, too early. Yellow, just right. Mm -hmm. Black, too late. Now, if you go to the top of the banana, you'll find, as with the soda can makers, they placed a tab at the top. So God has placed a tab at the top. Little when tab. you pull the tab, uh -huh. the contents don't squirt in your face. Uh, it doesn't you'll find the wrapper, which is biodegradable, has perforations. Mm -hmm. Notice how gracefully it sits over the human hand. Notice it has a point at the top for ease of entry. It's just the right shape for the human mouth. Yep. It's chewy, easy to digest, and it's even curved yep. toward the face to make the whole process so much easier. Even Seriously, curved Kirk, towards the, the face. Of creation testifies to the genius of God's creative oh. hand. Okay, so that's his big argument. <laughs> and a uh, little different kind of idiot to the internet right now. The, the comments are not idiotic. The comments are hilarious. Just the presentation is pretty idiotic. I love the atheist's worst nightmare. And then he holds up a fruit heavily manipulated by scientists. Uh, for the example, user Bruce writes, yes, bananas fit your hand. Uh, they also, along with cucumbers, fit up your butt. So God must be a butt bandit. <laughs> that made me laugh out loud when I first read it. Uh, Tyler Jarvis also made me laugh out loud uh, when he wrote, oh man, I must've gotten a broken banana. Mine curves away from my face. <laughs> Uh, Leon Fahrenheit writes, oh my God, but who created coconuts? Good question. Not easy to open. Cassandra answers, the devil, of course. Sounds about right. The coconut. Satan's Nana. Uh, God cuts you down, writes, this only proves the existence of the banana God. Uh, Julian Nicolay uh, Fredrickson writes, I'd also like him to explain the penis. Another comment that made me laugh so hard. Can you imagine that video? Just Ray talking about how penises work. His Australian accent. God made the penis perfectly able to be uh, gripped by either the right or the left hand, uh, able to pleasurably throttle to orgasm several times a day. You don't even have to sit up to crank your wanker. God made a perfect little release valve at the tip uh, there to shoot out all of the devil juice that builds up and makes you think about naughty things like grabbing ladies' fun backs. Uh, Kendall Rain makes fun of Ray's logic writing, I like how he says it's biodegradable as if that were some kind of special thing. Of course, it's biodegradable, dipshit. It's organic material. You're biodegradable too. It's called decomposition. That's the reason why Earth isn't full of dead bodies littered everywhere. <laughs> that is pretty funny. I mean, he, had, he had, it makes a selling point like, yeah, all food is biodegradable. It's not some special property of the nana. 
Uh, most of the rest of the comments are just about shoving things in Ray's ass, about how many types of fruit are perfect to be shoved up his ass. And, and also about how, you know, most foods we eat today have, have in fact been heavily manipulated by scientists. Uh, to be fair to Ray, he, he did eventually apologize for this video that probably converted more people on the fence to atheism than it did to Christianity. And uh, now we are done with this week's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. I also liked how he talked about it doesn't squirt over your face. Like, what? Like, why? Yeah, why would that kind of fruit like squirt over your face? Like, that's some special design. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing how when you open the tip, it doesn't just go, pow, and just shoot right in your eye. What? Uh, back to Lost Tech. Sometimes old technology is lost for good reason. Uh, a competing bit of tech comes along, makes it obsolete, and sometimes it just wasn't that good in the first place. Let's talk about a super slow 18th century steam car that no one liked except the dude who invented it. Yeah. Do you think the, you know, cars, uh, did you know that they were actually invented, kind of? There was cars going around in the 1700s? The automobile as we know it was obviously not invented in a single day, nor by a single inventor. Rather, the history of the automobile reflects an evolution that took place worldwide, a result of more than 100,000 patents from a variety of inventors. And there were a lot of firsts that occurred along the way, starting when theoretical plans for a motor vehicle were drawn up by both Leonardo da Vinci and Isaac Newton. And then there was Cugnot's stupid steam car. In 1769, the very first propelled road vehicle was a military tractor invented by a French engineer and mechanic, Nicolas Joseph Cugnot. He used a steam engine to uh, power his vehicle, built to his instructions at the Paris Arsenal. The contraption was used by the French army to haul artillery, and it moved slowly, very slowly. This three-wheeled metal patience tester moved at the whopping speed of two and a half miles an hour. <laughs> Top speed. And it had to stop every 10 to 15 minutes to build up enough steam power to move again. And it ran for roughly an hour total. And it didn't have any brakes. And it had an enormous boiler attached to the front of it that weighed three tons. Luckily, the whole thing weighed three tons. Luckily, it didn't have to deal with traffic because no one else was making one of these monstrosities. The following year, Cugnot built another steam-powered tricycle that carried four passengers, also reached top speeds of almost three miles an hour. And then in uh, 1771, the 46-year-old Cugnot drove one of his road vehicles into a stone wall, giving the inventor the distinct honor of being the first person to get into a car accident. And why did he get into his car accident? Because his three-ton machine had no brakes, which is insane. Like, how did he ever think this was going to stop? Luckily, no one was injured because it was, you know, it was barely moving. Uh, Cugnot would never build a third steam car. One of his patrons died, another was exiled, and funding for his uh, vehicle experiments dried up. Incredibly, more steam cars continued to be developed. None of them were very popular, not wildly popular, but in the 19th century, a variety of steam-driven horseless carriages and steam-driven tractors and cars were being driven by enthusiasts all over Europe, America, and elsewhere, and they were able to kick the speed up considerably. A man named Fred Marriott got a Stanley steam car humming all the way up to 127 miles an hour in a 1906 test at Ormond Beach in Florida. That's crazy. You know what I call a steam car that goes that, that fast? Hot rod. Because <laughs> it's hot. Because of the, the steam. I'll get out of here. Uh, no. Now for the last bit of modern lost tech. Whatever happened to all that Apollo moon landing technology? Did it disappear? We touched on this in the moon landing suck, uh, 136. Good excuse to dig a little deeper now. Uh, we thought we'd uh, go right to NASA for this one, and not just because the Illuminati ordered us to. With the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing just behind us, NASA landed on July 20th, 1969, or dead day. Uh, they did. Uh, reports have resurfaced about NASA losing some precious video footage of that first moonwalk. Uh, yeah, these, uh, yeah, this is the thing that they've already addressed, but they're having to address again now. H- how could that happen, right? How, how could they lose this footage? 
excuse me, is it because they needed to destroy evidence of them filming a fake ass landing in a, in a home studio or some kind of movie studio? Did, did it happen because even NASA employees are human beings and fuck up sometimes? You know, did they get rid of that footage because it doesn't matter because we have it recorded in other forms? Uh, NASA's official story is that they searched for but could not locate some of the original Apollo 11 data tapes, which sounds really bad. These tapes were original in the sense that they directly recorded data transmitted from the moon. An intensive search of the archives and records concluded that the most likely scenario was that the program managers determined that there was no longer a need to keep the tapes since all of the video and data had been recorded elsewhere and they were erased and reused. The data on those tapes, including video data, was relayed to the Manned Spacecraft Center, now the Johnson Space Center, during the mission. The video was recorded there and in other locations. So while the original tapes are, quote-unquote, well, not even quote-unquote, they're lost, there's no missing video footage from the Apollo 11 moonwalk. NASA's search did discover high-quality broadcast versions of footage. NASA worked with Lowry Digital, a premier film restoration company, to process the video using techniques unavailable in 1969, and the restored video was released in HD as part of the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11. So now, really, there's even better footage. Uh, here's, a, here's a more thorough explanation for any moon landing conspiracy believers. Uh, data from the Apollo 11 mission was sent from the spacecraft to three ground stations, one in California and two in Australia, which retransmitted it to the Manned Space Flight Center in Houston. The ground stations also recorded the data on special one-inch 14-track tapes, one track of which was for video. The video footage was recorded in slow scan, 10 video frames per second, which meant it could not be directly broadcast on commercial television, which I know is, is not the right frame rate just from, you know, uh, doing editing years ago before everything was totally digital. Uh, the video had to be converted for broadcast, uplinked to a satellite, then downlinked to Houston, from which it was sent out to the world. NASA spokesperson Richard Navsger at a press conference showing some of the restored footage in, 19, in 2009 said there was no video that came down slow scan that was not converted live, fed live to Houston and fed live to the world. So just in case anyone thinks there is video out there that hasn't been seen, that is not the case. And then he coolly scanned the room and then he snapped, we didn't fucking fake it, okay? Damn it. The world has become a cum dumpster of idiocy and I'm sick of holding press conferences where I'm asked questions by people who can't hold my intellectual jockstrap. I'm sick of the clown questions, you fuckers. And then he made kind of a ugh and he shook his head and he mumbled a bunch of curse words and he walked out of the room. No, he didn't do any of that stuff, but I bet he wanted to. Uh, he didn't do that any stuff. He, it, it, <laughs> he really did stop with him saying that is not the case. Way more important than the questions about the footage is the questions about why we haven't returned to the moon since 1969. Did we lose our ability to go to the moon? Did we never have it? Robert Frost, an instructor and flight controller at NASA, explains in more detail than I originally did the moon landing suck. Why we haven't gone back. He says, why does it take three years to develop a new car when it shares 90% of its DNA with the previous model? Why does it take six years to develop a new airplane when it shares 90% of its DNA with the previous model? The answer is that they are complex devices. A launch vehicle and spacecraft destined to go to the moon is much more complex and operates at the edge of the envelope where there is little tolerance for imprecision and error. When operating on the edge of the envelope, thousands and thousands of hours go into testing and tweaking. The development and operations team acquire expertise that no one else on the planet has. The vehicle cannot be built or operated without that expertise. Operating a space mission involves reams of paper in the forms of flight rules and operational procedures. Those rules and procedures are drafted over thousands of hours of tests and simulations. A change in the vehicle can send ripples of change through those documents. The Saturn V rocket had over 3 million parts. The command and service modules and lunar module were composed of millions of additional parts. 
An individual person cannot contemplate the scale of detail needed to assemble and operate those vehicles. So when the Apollo program ended, these factories that assembled those vehicles were retasked or shut down. The jigs were disassembled. The molds were destroyed. The technicians, engineers, scientists, and flight controllers moved on to other jobs. Over time, some of the materials used became obsolete. If we today said, let's build us another Saturn V rocket and Apollo CSM LEM and go to the moon, it would not be a simple task of pulling out the blueprints and bending and cutting some metal. We don't have the factories or tools. We don't have the materials. We don't have the expertise to understand how the real vehicle differed from the drawings. We don't have the expertise to operate the vehicle. We would have to substitute modern materials. That changes the vehicle. It changes the mass. It changes the stresses, the strains. It changes the interactions. It changes the possible malfunctions. It changes the capabilities of the vehicle. You know, we'd have to spend a few years redeveloping the expertise. We'd have to conduct new tests and simulations. We'd have to draft new flight rules and procedures. We'd have to certify new flight controllers and crew. We would essentially be building a new vehicle. And I love that a lot of people hearing all that just are saying over and over in their head, Illuminati, Illuminati, Illuminati. Uh, it makes sense to me, right? I touched on this, the moon landing suck. Uh, you know, but this makes why we haven't returned to the moon uh, make even more sense to me. It's very, 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 very complicated and expensive. It requires so much planning. And then, you know, in order to keep all the people employed from all of that space shuttle infrastructure, you have to keep sending more and more people uh, out into space, which, you know, when, when a war pops up or something, you don't always have the money for. It's a preposterously expensive proposition, right? You, you got to get all of uh, the employees, the equipment, the industrial spaces, and you got to do that, you know, now while we're already in so much debt. Uh, and okay, I'll, I'll write you marvelous meat sacks. Those are the lost technologies I've chosen to dissect today. I know there are plenty of others, uh, but I hope you're satisfied with the ones I've chosen. This could have gone on forever. There will be one more in the top five takeaways. Uh, we could have discussed the cloud buster designed by Austrian psychoanalyst William Reich. Reich claimed he could produce rain by manipulating what he called organ energy in the mid-20th century, present in the atmosphere. No peer-reviewed scientific evidence exists to support either the effectiveness of this device or the existence of organ energy. We could have broken down the suit coating system. In the late 1990s, a Dutch electronics technician named Romke Jan Bernard Sloot announced the development of the Sloot digital coating system, a revolutionary advance in data transmission that he claimed could reduce a feature-length movie down to a file size of just eight kilobytes. If you know anything about digital file sizes, that is like miraculously tiny. Apparently, Sloot dazzled Phillips execs by playing 16 movies at the same time from a 64-kilobyte chip, which that does blow my mind because I've always been like digital storage. That's fucked. That's crazy. Then after getting a bunch of investors, he mysteriously died on September 11th, 1999, two days before he was scheduled to hand over the source code, Illuminati. No one has come close to getting the file size of videos that small since. Uh, so did any uh, ancient civilizations have more than we do now? Did they enjoy, you know, magical technology lost to time? Uh, no, they didn't. There's absolutely no real evidence that makes an actual strong, legitimate case for theories like the ancient astronaut theory. Egyptians were not building pyramids with spaceships or alien technology. Ancient Indians were not flying around in spaceships. However, certain medicines like the Roman birth control may have indeed been lost. Plants and animal species do die off, of course, and their benefits then are lost to us. And ancient civilizations may have understood the movements of other planets and the moon and the earth, you know, much better than we ever thought they did. They may have, uh, you know, better building techniques, you know, for things like cement than we do, better stone cutting techniques. But there's no question that we live at the very best time, at least technologically, to have ever lived on Earth. For thousands of years, mankind has marched forward with invention after invention designed to make life easier and better. So rejoice 
meat sacks. Don't think like, oh man, I wish we had that. We have it the best. You're not missing out uh, on much more than, you know, easier access to taste your nanas. And as much as I love nanas, I wouldn't trade central AC, hot tubs, hot showers, and the internet for a nana that tastes like Laffy Taffy. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, don't believe the hype. The building of the pyramids is not an example of lost technology. It's absolutely amazing what the ancient Egyptians did, but it could be replicated today for the cost of around $5 billion. How did the ancient Egyptians build those pyramids without modern technology? Using a lot of dudes, a crew of 100,000 strong. Number two, early steam cars sucked. Never hop in an Uber if they pull up in an 18th century steam car unless you truly don't care how long the ride takes. Then it's probably going to be worth it for the story. Number three, most of the lost technology of the past are either given too much credit for being amazing or in some cases, not enough credit for being amazing. India's flying vimanas don't deserve recognition because they didn't exist. Roman cement, however, just might be superior to modern cement and could be part of the answer to combat climate change related to certain emissions, which is pretty damn cool. Number four. Again, we went to the fucking moon. NASA didn't lose the Apollo tech. They deleted the expensive tape they used after having all of it reproduced in high quality film. Number five, new info. Mm. Let's talk about one last bit of lost technology. This was uh, right up there, you know, for, for my favorite. This is real close, Starlight. It is wise to be skeptical of this for sure. It has all the red flags of pseudoscience, but after reading a lot about it, watching some pretty impressive product demonstrations on a third-party BBC show, it might be real. Starlight was touted as the most valuable man-made substance ever created, and maybe it was. The story's fascinating. Starlight allegedly had the potential to revolutionize countless industries, save lives, change the course of human history. The applications for it are near infinite, uh, although no scientific mind has ever been able to figure out how it works. What is Starlight? Why have you never heard of it? Well, Starlight was invented during the 1980s by Morris Ward, a ladies' hairdresser and guy who liked to tinker around with inventions from Yorkshire, England. He would say, we produced a material that was out of this world. It didn't burn. It didn't produce smoke. And it intensified on its strength and its abilities. Ward claimed Starlight was a plastic able to withstand heat to, to an almost unimaginable degree. He never revealed how it was made, saying merely that it contained up to 21 organic polymers and copolymers and small quantities of ceramics. And if you're wondering how a hairdresser could do this, he also worked for years, like two decades, on trying to come up with new hair products. So he did have a lot of experience in lab. Uh, based on interviews I've seen with him, he doesn't come across as crazy. In lab tests, Starlight has, according to Ward, with, withstood the heat from nuclear flashes and military tests. It can endure temperatures three times hotter than the melting point of diamonds. And it can be shaped and molded into almost any form. Starlight attracted a lot of attention during the 1990s after it made an appearance on the BBC's Tomorrow's World program, a program about, well, you know, futuristic inventions, where lots of popular products of today, like the camcorder and ATM, did make their television debuts. And, and the Tomorrow's World demonstration of Starlight, you can watch it on YouTube, it is mind-blowing. An egg is coated in this Starlight stuff, just a thin glaze. You can't even tell anything's on the egg, really. And then this egg is blasted with a blowtorch for minutes at 2,500 degrees Celsius. And after, you know, this thing, really close, like this blow, this blowtorch, like an inch away, the surface of the egg, barely lukewarm. The host grabs it. The egg is totally uncooked inside. They put the same blowtorch to, and they put it on another egg, same distance, egg not coated in starlight. The blowtorch punched a hole in the shell in under a second. We wanted to create something that wouldn't burn. It was halogen free, Ward told the BBC in 2010. He said, we produced a material that was out of this world. It didn't burn. Yeah, like what I said earlier. Uh, we still don't understand quite how it works said Ronald Mason, scientific advisor for the Ministry of Defense at the time. 
But that, but that it works is undoubtedly the case. I started this path with Morris being very skeptical of it. I became totally convinced of the reality of the claims. Ward was so paranoid about the formula for Starlight being reverse engineered, he would never allow anyone to keep a sample. And his financial demands of anyone who wanted to use Starlight, including NASA and Boeing and the US and UK military, killed the commercialization of the product. He'd go on a radio uh, show in 2009 and talk about various governments and corporations trying to steal his formula, and maybe they were doing that. He flat out refused permission uh, for anyone to be able to license it. And when he died in 2011, 2011 uh, nearly 30 years after Starlight's invention, Starlight had still never left his lab. No one really knows what happened to the formula. Some say his family keeps it locked away. Others, you know, claim it was a hoax the whole time. If the substance was real and readily available, some people hypothesize that it could have revolutionized skyscrapers, heating and cooling, space travel, fireproofing homes, and would have been pretty sweet in 3D printers and so much more. Oh, and uh, there were probably some things that the military could do with it. And if it's real, which I gotta say, and I'm very skeptical, I think you guys know that by now, it looks like it was real. What a cool example of how every once in a while, one of us meat sacks figured out something way ahead of its time, something that our peers just can't wrap their heads around. And that concept makes me very excited for the future because truly, who knows what is right around the corner? What amazing way ahead of its time that can launch humanity several generations forward could show up tomorrow, a year from now, two years from now. That makes me very excited to be alive. And when it shows up, I hopefully we don't lose this technology. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Lost Technologies has been sucked. Good choice, Space Lizards. Uh, I know some of you would love only true crime, but I need more variety than that. And I enjoy learning so much that I would have never learned if it was not for this podcast. Thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Camp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Jill Paisley, Time Suck High Priest, Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir, Danger Brain, Access Apparel, Thank you to Sack, a scriptkeeper Flannery, for pointing me in all kinds of good directions this week. Uh, join the Cult of the Curious Facebook group if you want to meet and converse with other suckers. Over 11,000 meat sacks in there now. Join the Time Suck Discord group for even more interaction. Link in the uh, episode description for that as well. Around 3,000 uh, you know, suckers active in there. Uh, next week, we continue to detour from true crime with an anti-vaxxer suck. Hello, hate mail. I can feel it coming already. Uh, hello, one-star reviews. Here it comes. Many celebrities, politicians, and more than a few snake oil salesmen have all railed against having their children inoculated against potentially lethal diseases. The debate, hardly debate, is between scores of concerned parents and the entirety of modern medical science. On one side, the skeptics say that the multitude of shots that an infant is required to get or at least recommended to get is uh, causing illnesses, especially autism. On the other hand, the medical community says that is not true at all. And also the vaccinations are considered one of the greatest advancements in medical science in the history of Earth and a major reason for the extended lifespan of modern humans. Since the 1970s, autism has increased, while at the same time, so has the push for vaccines. But if you know anything at all about science, correlation does not equal causation. Now, don't get me wrong. Being a parent is not easy, and the freedom to make parenting decisions is very important. However, your parenting decisions should not risk my kids' lives. Going to lay out a lot of science this week or this next week, and uh, I will look at both sides of the argument. I promise it's something I've researched on my own many times in the past. I can't even I can't wait for the updates that will come in afterwards. Uh, like the homeless suck, I think it's going to be an important suck, an important uh, thing to discuss, get people thinking about. Uh, going to go over a lot of history. Going to dive into plagues, pandemics, vaccines themselves. Uh, so don't be scared. Don't be scared. Uh, join us for the anti-vaxxer suck on Monday. 
And now, time for Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. First up, an uh, OJ update coming in from Will Carlucci. Uh, Will writes, I thought someone else would mention this, but after the most recent episode without hearing it, I thought I would. It's about the OJ Simpson glove. Once leather gets wet, it shrinks once it dries. So if the glove got wet, it would have shrunk once it dried. That's another reason the glove doesn't fit. So if the prosecutor, prosecutor excuse me, understood evidence handling, it would have been easy to understand that. As a law student, the OJ glove incident is an example used in classes. Oh, well, thank you for sending that in, Will. Did not know that. I didn't think about that, I guess. And then uh, right after this message, Sean adds even more info to the infamous glove fiasco. Time sucker Sean Brown writes, Succumus Maximus Lord Succulus Dan. I heard in a radio interview a while ago on public radio that OJ Simpson had arthritis and joint problems. True. Uh, you've heard that as well. So he routinely took anti-inflammatory meds. Supposedly, his defense team told him the night before he was to try the gloves on to not take his anti-inflammatory meds, therefore making his hand joints swell, making it harder to put the glove on. Just thought you'd find that interesting. Anyways, love the podcast. When I get paid, I intend to become a full-fledged space lizard. Yours and Nimrod Sean. Well, thank you, Sean. So yeah, so did he med himself, or you know, I guess not med himself, did he not take his meds? Uh, did the leather uh, shrink because it was wet? You know, the combo of those two, plus his cartoonish presentation of trying to put a hand in a glove, yeah, just made it all look that much more uh, worse. Uh, great extra info. Makes me even more irritated. Uh, update to, pre- to, the, to a previous update coming in from Time Sucker Troy West. Troy writes, Master Sucker, a little food for thought for you to chew on about gun people noticing details no one else cares about. Gun rights, gun ownership, and gun owners are under constant attack. The anti-gun people prey on the ignorance of the general public about guns to try and sway their opinions. There are countless examples in the media and state legislative bodies and in Congress of outright lies being told to sway public opinion against gun rights. They will show videos of fully automatic military rifles and say it's an AR-15. They have said a bullet button magazine release converts any weapon to full auto. They would have you believe that I have an arsenal that fires 5,000 rounds a second never needs to be reloaded, and is capable of destroying a tank with a single shot. So to us, every bit of incorrect information is another, quote, bullet in the gun. That's why we react so passionately. Enough lies are being intentionally told about us already. We don't want these to be spread via mistake. And that, I will say, makes complete sense to me, Troy. In what is possibly the worst analogy you've ever heard, what if there was a social movement to ban all comedy podcasts because they were created by sadistic individuals who enjoyed torture? I feel like you're talking about me there. (laughs) And then what if you saw a prominent political figure, given the example of a podcaster who once blew a man's finger off with a military device? Would you ignore that deliberate use of half-truth, or would you feel the need to rebut that statement with the fact that Jimmy Wisman did it to himself as a kid on accident? (laughs) I love love you working Jimmy from Small Town Murder and Crime and Sports into this. Great podcast, by the way. Good friends. And if six months later you heard someone on the street repeating that misinformation to a friend as the gospel truth, would you ignore it or be infuriated? And now to go completely, uh, to completely go gun nerd on you to prove your point of view. Um, the Mini 14 does not use the same magazine as the AR-15. Also, the AR-15 is chambered in 5.56, the same round the military uses. The Mini uh, has a chamber in, oh, Jesus Christ. The Mini is chambered in 223 Remington, a very similar civilian round with a lower chamber pressure than 556. An AR-15 can fire either of these rounds, but a Mini-14 should not be fired with 556 as the pressure is higher than the gun was designed to withstand mic drop. Love what you do. Hail Nimrod Troy. Thank you, Troy. Well played, man. I get the nerdiness. Thanks for laying out a good argument for your beliefs. Man, that is what the world needs more of. Whatever your belief is, good fact-based detailed arguments. 
We need to talk about the important issues of the day, but we need to do so with as many facts and details as we can get into our meat sack heads. Uh, well, well done, man. Uh, the differing opinions on the attractiveness of Bell Gunness continue. Time sucker Kelly Sammons does not agree with my assessment. Kelly writes, what's up, sir? Sucks a lot. Uh, listen to the Bell Gunness, and her name may be uh, Kelly Simmons. I, I put Sammons in my notes, but that doesn't feel right to me. If, if it is right, I apologize. Kelly Simmons or Sammons. Uh, what's up, sir? Sucks a lot. Listen to the Bell Gunness suck. Had to stop writing you this. You just said that you thought Belle Gunness was kind of attractive despite what all your sources say about her. So of course I looked her up. She looks like Miss Trunchbull from the movie Matilda. Keep on sucking and get your eyes checked. Okay, Kelly. I looked through your reference and you know what? Yeah, she does. In her later years, she looks like Miss Trunchbull. I still think that a young Belle was pretty. And I do realize still that I'm in the minority when it comes to that assessment. Uh, my horrific Belle impression put a very strange scene in the mind of time sucker Jess Pascu, who writes, Dear Master Sucker, I've been listening to Time Suck since April and have enjoyed every sucky moment listening to the most recent suck on Bell Gunness and your Scandinavian impressions, particularly the sex scenes. All I can think of is Teletubbies doing the murdering. <laughs> I laughed until I cried with this mental image. Thought I'd share and hopefully get a small giggle out of it. Yep. Keep on sucking. Hail Nimrod. Jess, uh, that is a weird image, Jess. To be clear, that image did come from this kind of talk, right? Now we'll end on a message from a really kick-ass mom. And great time sucker, Jesse G. Jesse writes, Master Sucker, Queen of the Suck Lindsay, Bojangles, and the Suck Dungeon crew. Sup, I've never written in before, but I desperately hope you read this. I love the show and spread the suck as much as possible, even though I missed out on the free stickers, because of course I did. And I cuss you out weekly when you get in my head. All thanks to my son, Blake. If it hadn't been for him, honestly, I probably have no idea who you would have no idea who you or any of other of my favorite podcasters are. Excuse me. I get super stoked every time I get a no notification about a new Time Suck episode. So for context, I got pregnant with Blake at 15 years old. I dropped out of high school, got a job and spent the next 18 years trying to get us on our feet. But it always seemed like something happened. It was always something. Fast forward to now. I'll get to the point. If I had not had Blake when I did, I would never have gone to college, gotten my degree. To be perfectly honest, I probably would not be here at all because the many, many days that suicide popped into my head, I, could, I just could never do that to my son. Now he is an amazing adult. And I don't just say that because I'm his mom. He graduated high school with honors, got a handful of scholarships. Now we have become almost best friends unless I have to use the mom voice. He knows what's up. Blake is so kind-hearted and funny. He's been dying to get an open mic, uh, get to an open mic for comedy, but he won't let me go to the first one. I don't blame him. He'll be 21 on August 5th, 2019. Today, this episode drops. I don't have much as far as money, but I throw myself at the feet of the Suck Dungeon hierarchy and humbly beseech thee for a shout out. If you could please wish my baby a happy 21st birthday, even if it's late, if you could do it at all, please, that would mean the world to Blake. From a teen mom before it was on MTV, please, please tell my baby I love him and wish him a happy 21st. You only get one after all. Thank you in advance. Thank you for being something my son and I can enjoy a rolled one over smiley face. Nice. Love and shameless hope. Jesse G. Well, thank you, Jesse, for being such a great example of starting off in a tough spot, a single teen mom, working your ass off to do what's right for your son, raise a great me sack, go to college yourself. You should be so proud. Hail you, Jesse. And happy birthday, Blake. Keep making mama proud. Hail Nimrod and take a little toke from me. Be sure to graduate, get out there and light this world up like some fucking Greek fire. Hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a wonderful week, Meat Sacks. Go find that starlight. Get it out there on the market. Find that old heart of ours. 
Silphium. And you know what? Most importantly, why don't you keep on sucking? I'm talking about some cool shit before you started slapping your dumb lip flaps around. God damn it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.